You're right, Mark. That actually sounded quite worrying. Somebody sent me um, a, a Twitter thing. It's yesterday. nice of you to be in the same studio, by the way, rather oh. than somewhere else. Apparently, although I, you know, obviously, because I was apparently, should, should we do? Should we recreate a little bit of last week's show? Hang on, hang on, hang on, one second. Say hello, Mark. Okay, hello, Mark. Hello, Sergeant. How are you? Uh, I'm doing fine. You sound as though you might be in a, a strange studio somewhere. Also, in a studio, I'm talking to you. Something like that. Yeah. Don't do it again. I won't. Okay. On Tuesday evening, writes Deborah Lister. Hello, Deborah Lister. I was snuggled under my nice warm covers listening to your podcast. I was warm and comfy, nice and drowsy. I was contented. Okay. Then, from your evil mind, the water pouring incident happened as you commenced. Oh yeah, which was tormenting Mark. Yeah, and can I just say, ha ha ha! Oh, very funny. It was. You know. Yeah. Except. It was very funny from where you were, but from where I was, it was... It was not funny at all. It was actually very upsetting. Anyway, says Deborah, my brain came to life. You did it again. The brain sent a communication to my bladder. Yes. Can you hear that, it said? Yes. Yes, I can, said the bladder. I really, really can. Wasn't that a song by... um uh, Dean Friedman? Yes, I can, said the bladder. It was a follow-up to Yes, to Well, Well, said the rocking chair. Uh, so I'm I'm annoyed about that, Deborah. Sorry, I'm, I didn't realise that you know it was just I was only planning to torment Mark, not anyone else. Yeah, well, I did feel utterly tormented, but apparently I've had I've had words with Robin, and apparently it was his idea. Can I just say, evil producer Robin, that we? Oh, sorry, evil editor Robin. Editor. But if you tell Simon to pour water into a cup whilst one of us is quite some distance away from the toilet, which I to which I could not get because in the Birmingham studio I required a Birmingham pass, which I didn't have, you can be a producer. This uh, is the sound, on the one hand, of a piece of perspex. On the other hand... It's, it's the sound of triumph. sound of glory and triumph <laughs> and in-your-face glory. Yes. So just remind everybody what it is. That is... No, you do it. You say what it is. Well, it is... It's the listener's choice. Listener's choice. From the British Listener's Podcast choice. Awards listener's choice. 2017. Listener's choice. Listener's choice. And it's got a microphone, old-fashioned microphone with a cable, uh, which acts as underlining for the British Podcast Awards. Yeah. And for what did we win that, Simon? Uh, for being... Uh, the listener's choice. The listener's choice. So, and how many How many entries did they have? A million. It w- no, but you say that as a sarcastic thing, but it was some... A lot. It was some h- hundreds... Of, yeah, th- th- we do know because there was a news story that said how many... Robin, can you say in either my ear or something? About 400 podcasts. They, they, no, no, that... What? About 100,000 votes. 100,000 votes, thank you very we much. We had 100,000 votes, of which 99... Let's do, it, let's do it like the Albanian elections used to be when Enver <laughs> Hodger would when say... Who? Enver Hodger, Hodger the Todger. He was the guy who ran... The place, right? So he would say, oh, I've got 99.9% of all votes. They've all, they've all voted for me. <laughs> I've got 99... What's that song? I've got some pounds in my pyjamas. I've got 40 million Deutschmarks in my... We're back into musical. No, no, but it's... this. It's. It sounds like an Eric Idle song. It is. Yes. It, can I just say congratulations on... have you if, if you've not heard it before, just on the basis of that tiny little snippet that you guessed... It's that sort of like Eric a Noel Coward voice as done by Eric Idle. Yes, oh, there is nothing quite as fabulous as money, money, money. I've got £20,000 in my pyjamas. I've got 50,000 French francs in my fridge. <laughs> Finished? Can we find that? Thank you. We'll Whatever it, it is. We'll have it before the beginning of the show so you can hear it. It's very funny. Alexander Lewis. And it's not political. There's none of that. There's absolutely none. No, there's, not, there's no chance of Birdsong at any stage. 
because there is nothing political happening in this. None. I write in response to last week's email from... Actually, having said all that, it's quite possible that when we speak to Jessica, Jessica Chastain later... Yes. She'll get that, political. ..that the world of Washington politics may well come into well, it. That's OK, because no. we, don't, we don't in any way impinge upon that. No. OK. Anyway, Alex, If you're listening in America, stop. No, 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 it's fine. Carry on and spread the word. But it's fine because we don't break any rules there because they have different rules. What, what rules do they have? American there, so? rules. American rules. Yeah. Is that like every time, Americans. So, every time somebody gets touched, they all have to stop? I write and in then they have a conference and then there's a throw-in from the side in case anybody gets hurt. I'm I write like in response sports game. to last week's email from my namesake, Alex, regarding Cathay Pacific's groundbreaking foray into the medical world in officially recognising altitude-adjusted lacrimosity syndrome, or ALS, as a condition. I, too, am a long-distance witteree. As a humanitarian worker, I, I can uh, thank you for having witted me through difficult moments in recent years in Pakistan, Afghanistan and presently in Bongi in the Central African Republic. Wow. Where I represent a lonely blot on the eyewittersphere. <laughs> Your cheque is in the post, says thank Alex. You. Yes. The cheque is now more, incidentally, because of the podcast award. We made such a huge yeah. amount of money out of the podcast awards. It's now you get more money for... That's right, isn't it? I'm just going to look on the iWitter app um, just to see, first of all, what our bank balance is, but also then to see if I can find Alex in Bongi. OK. Anyway, he says, My work requires regular long-haul travel, meaning that most of my cinematic consumption occurs at high altitude. It also means that flying can be an emotional experience, as I know I will not be able to see my wife and children for two long months. With this in mind, I feel well-placed to contend that our good friends at Cathay Pacific may have misunderstood the concept of ARLS. There are some films in which a tear is entirely merited. A diagnosis of ARLS must surely be reversed for those in which one is not. Right. So to illustrate this point, here is a list of films in which I may have shed an inadvertent tear during recent flights. Ready? Yes. Room. Oh, well, Justified. Yeah. The Pianist, Who Could Not Cry, says Alex. Yeah. Lion, Heartbreaking and then Heartwarming. Yes. Uh, uh, Moana, a recent favourite of my daughter and has Disney music to boot. OK, fair enough. Now consider the following list. OK. A hologram for the king. So obviously these are the ones that he's saying. <laughs> okay, yes. And then he writes, Good God, man, get a grip. Perhaps I cried out of bored confusion. <laughs> the Big Lebowski. Was I so moved by the reassurance that the dude is looking out for all of us? Hidden figures. Well, it must have been the jarring and unnecessary love story tacked onto the edges of an otherwise decent <laughs> film. Surely Arles cannot be diagnosed unless heartstrings would not be tugged were it not for the altitude. Would that it were so simple, says Alex. Yours trippingly. So that is exactly right. It's no use saying I cried to Lion because you would cry, you, would be, you may well shed a tear wherever you are to Lion because it's a very passionate, emotional film. Yes. But if you shed a tear... To a hologram for the king. Yes. Or The Big Lebowski, or a film which is not sort of emotionally engaging like that, then maybe you have got Arles, and I think Alex is onto something. The weird thing about Arles is it's all to do with... It's, it's kind of... It, it's, it's to do with crying out of context to some extent, isn't it? It's to do with... Um, uh, it's to do with something being more, you know, more emotional than you would think it. I'm just going to answer a question which I had in my head. It's called, I've got £90,000 in my pyjamas... By Monty Python. There you go. On the on I've the eyewitness, ninety thousand pounds in my pajamas. That's what you're looking up. It's not actually Noel Coward. When he said, "Thank you," I'm showing you a picture. Of oh, look at that! Is that him? The Central African Republic. There's the capital Bongi, and there is a little Wittertainment flag. That's literally that's that's your man. 
That's him. That's fantastic. Thanks, Alex. We just looked you up. You're genuinely who you say you are. Brilliant. We've got time for one more before we have a musical... Yes, a musical interlude, which you're going to enjoy. Uh, this is Margaret, who's nearly 55. I'm writing in the hope of getting your blessing for our plans later this month as MTL and devotees of the church and FTE, I think, but my memory is less good now, as Mark will understand. Yeah, tell me. I'm just about to retire from my job as a forensic psychiatrist at the age of 55, which is something psychiatrists could do if they joined up around the time I did in 1986 or before. And to celebrate this and to mark a significant birthday for the good doctor, him indoors, he's going to be 65, we are having a celebration at the Belmont Cinema in Aberdeen with drinks, food and a private screening of our favourite film, for friends, family and colleagues on the 20th of May. Very good. We're keeping the name of the film secret at the moment, but I hope that you will give us our blessing for our choice. Please don't say it out loud if you get to this bit. OK, I'm now going to circle this, Mark. OK. So this is for you to just pass comment without saying what it is. It's the one circled. Oh, that's a great choice. OK, there you go. Colin, the manager at the Belmont, did approve of this, but said he has to move us onto screen two as the film is only available in 35mm and they only have one suitable projector and one projectionist who knows how to operate it. And it's not in the smaller screen three we'd initially booked. If you can't give us your blessing, I will be sad, but we won't change the film because we love it and Colin... No, we can give you our blessing. It is a very good choice. There you go. Uh, and I did think of emailing you for suggestions when we were trying to decide, but I, when I suggested this particular film... Are we there yet? To the immediate film, uh, to the immediate family, Roy, Gillian and uh, you and everyone was very enthusiastic about it. So we, uh, we went with it without getting your advice. If it all turns out badly, then I'll know in future that the advice of the good doctors is essential for this type of thing. Computer? I'm just doing I don't think little clues. I don't think... But does she want clues? Well, I mean, honestly, you'd have... Does she want clues? Well, I'll stop doing them then. Does she want clues? Why are you doing the Donald Trump hands? Because it's just a thing. OK. She doesn't. So, anyway, Margaret, nearly 55. I hope it goes very well and you have the full approval of everybody here. Right. Shall we have the song? OK, go on. You're going to love this. OK. I've got £90,000 in my pyjamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. That's dated. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Mark's getting nearer and my dollar bills will buy the Brooklyn Bridge. Nothing, nothing quite, quite as wonderful, wonderful as money, 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 money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. OK, we've had enough. We're not allowed to have it. It's just about to end. Well, we still have to talk. Anchor for the muchness of the banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, 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 You can keep round. your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. Did this, did this come out when the accountancy film short oh. went with one of the Python? No, that's the... Um, uh, the, the accountancy. Yeah, yes, on the wide accountancy, No. Because that's the supporting film to uh, Monty Python's no Monty Python's Meaning of Life, Lip. and it's the no Meaning of Life is is Douglas Adams. Monty Python's Meaning of Life, and it's the support feature, which is the the Scarlet the the, the, the Crimson Permanent Assurance Company, in which they break off from the edge of in, in something which brilliantly foretold the way the world would go. The um the 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 insurance company breaks off and then goes through and ravages Wall Street and all the rest. For, of it. for younger podcast ears, and then they turn up later on in the film. Franks and Deutschmarks were uh, old, coins, old currencies, no, notes, old currencies from the old days. It is true that when he was at the height of his powers, and he may still, but there may still be heightened powers ahead. But nobody could turn a tune like Eric Idle. Yes, he was. He, he was brilliant. I what mean, was I was. The, what was the Python short? 
which basically was a travelogue about Vienna. Yes, that, that's, that the one, that's the one at the beginning of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Gondolas. Gondolas, and now more of those don- gondolas. Yes, exactly. Yes. And, it's, and it starts out completely straightforward, and you do think that you are... Jet, because if for people not old enough to remember, if you went to a UK cinema in the 1970s, the supporting feature would often be a badly put-together travelogue about going on holiday or a feature about a local celebrity. In my case, David Blair of David Blair's Changing Room, who was a hairdresser who had done very well in the North London area, who had an entire short film made about him that was a supporting feature to... And I was very good friends with his son, Simon. Simon and I were in a band together. And so we went to the cinema and saw a documentary about his dad. What a, what a showbiz anecdote that was. Yes. And now on with the show. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the programme where we're going to talk films between now and four o'clock. A uh, number of ways of getting in touch. You can text us, 85058. You can email mail at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet us, at Wittertainment. And if you go via the Five Live website, you can look at the studio cam. Uh, Mark has kindly agreed to come into the show today and not be in one of his special, uh, specially upholstered luxury uh, studios somewhere around the country. He's actually here, which is good because now you can... Uh, if you are on the webcam, you can now see the fact that we're holding up a little uh, award. You're holding it up. I'm not holding it. Okay, well, I'm just holding it up. Uh, no one can see it. Anyway. Yes, I can. It's a bit. It's a bit. Yeah, of... I can see it very clearly now. There we are. It is a British Podcast Awards, the Listener's Choice 2017. So, in many ways, it is the award of the li- <laughs> of the listeners. It is. So, listeners, in in many ways, it's yours. So, we could yes. all take it in turns to have it on. On a particular mantelpiece. We could. So everyone who's voted for that, you're entitled to have it for at least... It's made of very sturdy moments. plastic. It is. It would be quite useful. Do you yes. want to take it home first, or should we let Robin take it back? Well, I mean, I'd have to move the uh, the Sony Awards from the top of the piano, Simon. <laughs> Remember the ones which, after we won them, I said, I'll take them, I'll lend you them in a bit, and then yeah. I never did. That's no, I think that's a fantastic thing. When I am... do, when, it's a good point. When do I get those? Well, you don't now. They've been in mind so long that, you know, I think your name has actually faded off them. I now think it says... Would you, would you bring... Would what? I would? Would you bring them in next I'll do your swap. I'll do your swap, OK? If you, I'll swap you the, 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 the Sony for that one. Well, fine, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, this is this is a lovely thing. But no, it is a lovely thing, yeah, but, you know. But if, as as you've had it, how many years would you say you've had it? Um. <laughs> you've forgotten about it, but now you're making I think the sun, it. Did the sunny still go? Doesn't matter. How many years have you had it? Uh, several. It's sort of dishonest, isn't it, really, to have kept it all this time when it doesn't actually only belong to you? There was a friend of mine that I was at school with called Nick Kennedy, and we bought a copy of Captain Fantastic, the Elton John album, between us because we couldn't afford to buy it each, you know, on, on our own. You still got it. So we cl- we clubbed together, and the deal was that we had it one week each. You know, he had it for a week, and then I had it for a week, then he had it for a week, and I had it for a week. And that went on for several, you know, for a long time until, you know, we grew apart and we grew... And I've got it, and I've had it now for... Since that arrangement... You're a hoarder. 47 years hoarder. since... So I think I owe him. Well, next week, then, I think it should be an amnesty. You should give back Captain Fantastic... To Nick, uh, your old mate. Nick Kennedy. And you should bring in all the Sony Awards that you shouldn't have anymore. Just the one. Just the one, then. Yeah, one of them is mine. But there's one of them that is shared between us that I said... Shared. Sh- yeah, that really shared. shared. But every time I look at it, Simon, I do think of your involvement in it. My participation. <laughs> OK. Your um, contribution, because that is a ward in which you were definitely a contributor. Anyway, now listen, Jessica Chastain yes. is going to be speaking to us live... Now? Uh, ...in about half an hour's time. OK. But it's one of those things. Who knows when it's actually going to turn up? Because it might be that she's talking to Steve Wright or something and it goes on. 
Oh, if she's talking to Steve Wright, she'll be sidetracked into oldies and, you know, she'll be doing factoids right now, won't she? Do you remember last week when you were down in that... Uh, that there Birmingham? I think you usually say up in that there We Birmingham. had an email from Ben Johnson who described himself as a solutions ar- a solution architect. Yes, and apparently loads of people have got in touch to say a solutions architect isn't an architect. Yes, well, anyway... so well, this we, was, we just said, what is a solutions architect? Isn't that just like an architect? This is originally uh, a podcast conversation. But anyway, Ben's been back... Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought it was a podcast. says, um, a follow-on from your riff about what a solution architect does or doesn't do. Firstly, yeah. I, uh, firstly, I fully agree that this is a title that is open to various interpretations and in reality has no bearing on the role I do, which yeah. is actually designing customer telecommun- telecommunication networks. What? That's what he does. Which part of solution and architecture is that? I have shared two minutes of fame with my manager. As an aside, he's interested in any kitchenware that you may be launching. (laughs) And he also agrees, and henceforth, see the power you have, and at considerable cost, has renamed the entire team. So Ben (laughs) and his team are now no longer solution architects. They're now sales engineers. (laughs) So this email is now signed. (laughs) Ben, sales engineer. Now, we're no longer known as solution architects, we're sales engineers, a title that still no, is no closer to describing what I actually do for a living. What, and, and just remind me, what is it that he said he actually he designs does? customer telecommunication telecommunication. You can't networks. say communications, I can you? Ironically. So why can't you be a customer telecommunications network designer? Yeah, that sounds that sounds sort of important and anyway, technical. Following on from your interpretation of what a solution architect does, can I suggest you engage with one to help with the requirement for the large number of nooks, crannies, corners and vestibules required in your church? <laughs> uh, which is fair enough. Anyway, Ben, thank you very much. I hope you don't mind being sales engineer as opposed to solution architect. Sounds sort of Solution architect sounds much more... It's much more of a dinner party, isn't it? If somebody says, what are you? Say, I'm a sales engineer. It's not the same as saying, I am a solution architect. It's like being a lifestyle guru. Bren, Brendan O'Halloran, who describes himself as being being in Google Town in Ireland, um, <laughs> says, I was intrigued by your flippant discussion of solution architects okay. and what they're actually for. Yeah. It's clear that hyperscale cloud computing, enterprise network architecture and big data analytics are passing you by, correct? And some roles, uh, which are very familiar to a large section of people, are somewhat unfamiliar to you and potentially mirth-inducing. The title of Solution Architect... Hang on, hang on, hang on. Is this going in the way that there is nothing funny about Solution Architect? Because if, if that is where it's going, can I just stop you now and go, yes, there is. Carry on. The title of Solution Architect is, however, quite well established. For the uninitiated, somewhat vague, but for the majority of the tech sector, well known. What you can expect in the future is absolutely crackers. So apparently you can prepare for... This is just some on his list. Digital profits, developer evangelists... What? Hacker in residence, innovation Sherpas. What? In-house philosophers, <laughs> chief happiness officers, and transformation managers. Robin I'm, said that he's chief happiness officer. I reckon there's almost certainly a transformation manager just on the floor below, down where Rory Catherine Jones is sitting there right is. now. This is rather like, um, you know, W1A and being head, head of better. Brendan says, these are now the IT titles spreading like wildfire from Palo Alto to Shoreditch to Dublin's Google Town. For those of us that are plugged in, as much as middle-aged men can be bothered to, the tech <laughs> developments, I dread to think what my gen- grandchildren will be called. So the, he that hasn't made these up. So, so these are real things that are titles that are going to yes. be in use quite Transformer soon. Transformer manager, digital prophet, entrepreneur in residence, in-house philosophers. That isn't a job. You said hacker in residence. Yeah, hacker in residence. All I left out some of them. Oh, right, there was more. Anyway, we should pass them out, and doubtless we'll have meetings with some of those people when the BBC starts them. But yeah. will the meeting be 30? 
Well, we did. We, yes. Well, and do we still score thirty out of, out of thirty? I think we had twenty-eight one week, but then we made up for it the next week when we were thirty-two. But no one knows what it was out of or thirty of what. Box office top ten this week has. Well, let's actually. I'm just going to start before we get to the ten. Yes. This is part of the chart rundown. You're going to do eleven. I am actually. Good. If I can find because at number eleven, at number eleven is is, is a movie that I just uh, I know you want to talk about. Yes. Shall I just talk about it while you're rustic your paper? Yes, because number 11 is Lady Macbeth. Which is terrific. and It is terrific. Terrific for a number of reasons. Firstly, I think William Oldroyd has made a very, very impressive feature right. debut. He comes from a, a theatre background. This is his first feature. He has made a short before. And yet he appears to have arrived sort of fully uh, uh, cognizant of the language of cinema. I think this film has one of the best sound designs of a, any film that I've seen recently. So much of what's going on in the film is to do with the, with the sound design. It has a really star-making performance by Florence Pugh, who is just going to be huge. I mean, she was great in The Falling. She's great in this. She's just finished. She's got three movies in post-production, including one with Liam Neeson and one with this film called Fighting With My Family, in which she plays Paige, the wrestler. Um, and... Um, she, I mean, I think she's just going to be a really, really big star. And I think when people are going to look back on these two, in the same way people look back on Kate Winslet's work in Heavenly Creatures, they're going to look back on The Falling and this and go, you know, yeah, yeah. that, that it, it, it was all evident there. It is it is a really terrific film and uh, I really liked it. And, you know, he's, he's going to be a great filmmaker and she's going to be a great star. And those sound guys did a brilliant job. I agree with all that. And... Good. And... Does it make me appear very petty and trivial? Yes. To say that, I mean, I think it was obviously a low-budget film. Yeah. But there were a number of points where I looked at the uh, paintwork that Ms. Pugh was walking past a lot. I thought, that is a nice bit of paint. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> I wouldn't mind some of that paint. It was very beautiful grey. And everything. Is, and there, it's all like a, uh, a lot of them are, um, this might have been... Where did you see it? Did you see it in a screening room or in a public cinema? I saw it in a public cinema with members of the public. By the way, yeah. thank you for reminding me, the two women who came in and sat next to me yeah. in, the, in, a, in, a, in a cinema that should know better. Yeah. So it's two minutes in. I'm already incandescent. The yeah. woman has got out her phone, right, and she starts to text. Now, if someone gets out their phone and they've just got to text, they just look at it and put it away, yes, prepared not to say off. anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she started to write. Oh, no. And then no, she no. carried on. No, no, Now, no. given the nature of this film, which yes. is... It's very precise and it's very quiet. And there's a lot of silence with no, you know, noise. You can't eat a thing. You can't no. suck anything. You no. can't drink anything. She's tap, 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 tap. Oh. And she's carrying on. She's like writing an essay. In the end, I did say, excuse me, can you turn... So she, she put it in a bag. And then just as a kind of way of snubbing her nose, she gets it out again two minutes later and then puts it straight back. But okay. well, there are some films... Like if you if you get a text... I know you're looking at the clock. However, this is... No, 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 go ahead. I mean, I'm with you. If you get a text in the middle of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, for example, it might be that that it sort of doesn't matter quite so much because there's so much noise and there's so much stuff going on. But in in this particular film, in Lady Macbeth, there is nothing else happening. It'll just be you and your phone. No, I listen, I absolutely agree. Because as I kept saying, I keep referring to the soundscape of it and the soundscape requires being played in a cinema in which there is not distracting... Noise. Here is Catelyn, who's in Fort Worth. Hello. Fort Worth. Fort Worth in Texas. Texas. Okay. I listen to the podcast every Friday. Uh, But for the first time ever, your programme has caused me to fear for my life. Really? Mm -hmm. 
I should okay. I should explain. One of my jobs is a rather odd one. I work at horse shows, braiding manes and tails all through the night. It's mostly dark, solitary work that serves as a perfect time to catch up on audiobooks and podcasts like yours. Yeah. Last weekend, I was working at a horse show in East Texas, a.k.a. Tornado Valley, uh, and earlier in the evening, thunderstorms had produced said tornadoes strong enough to kill some people within 10 miles of the horse show. The brunt of the squall line had passed through the area and the weather had calmed, so I went to work at the stables. I had settled into my work, happily twisting hair to your witterings, when I suddenly heard a faint wailing wind. Just at this time, oh, right. I noticed it had begun to thunder and lightning again outside. I thought, is this it? Has another tornado developed? Am I about to be carried off? I didn't want to panic, but I did think that an open-air stable was not the safest of places to be. But return of Mark's voice suddenly eased my fears when he finally spoke up to say one of the great things about Lady Macbeth was the sound oh, design, goodness. and the wailing wind was coming from my earbuds and not the world outside. I breathed a sigh of relief. You can imagine, if you were entirely on your own and in the dark, yes. and then you, that particular clip with the wailing wind... Yeah. Yeah. in the northeast of England, as it turns out. Yes. But actually, she thought was in You hear it in Texas. That's how wailing it was. It's scary. Uh, so that's at number 11. So right. we just include that as a top 11. Uh, the Promise is at number 10. Which tackles a difficult subject matter and attempts to do so in a way that is populist and accessible and I think doesn't succeed. It, it doesn't mean that it... It doesn't try admirably to do it. I mean, to tell the story of the Armenian genocide in a way which, you know, will play to a mainstream audience. Um, but I think it, the, the film, in the end, falls between two stools. It can't quite decide whether what it wants to be is a sort of, you know, a, a romantic story with a political backdrop or a political backdrop which is being told via the romantic story. And it's not as engaging as it ought to be. I mean, I think it's, a, it's an honourable failure but I think it is a failure. Uh, from our Facebook page, Dhruv Krishna Goyal. I had the exact same thoughts about The Promise as Mark. Uh, earnest performances, particular from Oscar Isaac and Christian Bale, gorgeous cinematography and some intense moments scattered throughout a rather tepid and overstuffed film. There are about three to four different stories within the film, all that could have been made into a great individual film, but the amalgamation of these plots overall diluted the whole effect of the film for me. I hardly found the film emotionally arresting, and that is a problem for a film mainly aiming to elicit an emotional response. Yes, and also a film dealing with such a harrowing subject matter as well. So, uh, uh, And now, at number nine, so this is unusual to have yeah. the same movie, but it's in twice. So, uh, Babu, uh, Bahubali, 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 the conclusion, the one with strong arms, conclusion in Tamil, yes. is at number, so number nine. nine. And at number six, it's it's in uh, Hindi. So this is now a uh, you know a record-breaking movie. The, the brilliant Charles Gant, who is one of the few people who can really understand the way box office works, says this about it. He says, different, for, uh, different versions of a film are usually classed as the same title for purpose of box office reporting. So it's very rare, if not wholly exceptional, to see a film appear twice in the UK top ten, as has just occurred with the Indian... Indian historical actioner uh, Bahubali 2 conclusion. It ranks sixth in the Hindi version, ninth in the Tamil version, and it appears two more times, apparently, lower down the ranking for versions in Malayalam and uh, Telugu. In total, over the w weekend, the various versions grossed 455,000. So, I mean, it's in, it, it in the charts, the general charts, in four separate language versions and is doing terrifically good business. Well, and, and because our audience are exceptional, we have reviews of both. Go ahead. So uh, Krishna Nagavolu says, Bahubali Part 2 is the vision of a renowned South Indian movie director. The efforts of his team to turn his vision to on-screen can be seen in every frame of the movie. 
There are some great ideas presented but were seldom followed up on. The movie has action set pieces that try to top one another, but what keeps the audience engaged is the emotional core that was built on top of the first part and on the back of strong performances from the main cast. A worthy watch for all Indian cinema fans. And Mahuntan uh, Tilai says, My parents have seen the Tamil version and have raved about it. Most big blockbuster South Asian movies are from Bollywood. This is from South India, where the thriving film industry is very different. My parents were born in Sri Lanka and don't get to watch many Tamil movies on the big screen. Apparently, it's an Asian cross between Lord of the Rings and Passion of the Christ. Wow, imagine that. (laughs) But I have no idea how that could make any sense. Anyway, my mum said it was the best film she'd seen all year and her film sense is usually pretty good. And Mike Carhill, um, who uh, wrote up for The Guardian, really liked it as well. I'm going to see it in Southampton this Sunday. So that's Bahu Bali uh, Part 2 at number nine and at number six. Uh, so let's go back to eight, where, in contrast, Smurfs The Lost Village. I think we've probably covered it in, in as much detail as it needs Milan to be covered. Rouge at seven, which Again, yeah, covered. still there through, through Secret Cinema. Six, we've done we've already, done so. Their Finest is at five. I like Their Finest. I like Their Finest a lot. I think that there is... Uh, there are things about it that are that are creaky, but I think that they don't detract from its charm. It is a story set during World War Two in which Gemma Artem plays um, a sort of feisty independent spirit who is roped in to write a feature which will prov- prove morale boosting for people at home whilst the war is on. Um, it's inspired by a number of, uh, you know, actual uh, British movies made under those circumstances. I mean, people... It's funny because I was listening to when um, Robbie was reviewing it and people were talking about Ministry of Information films. And, of course, people forget that Matter of Life and Death, the Powell and Pressburger movie, which is one of the greatest movies ever made, was indeed made as a piece of propaganda. It was made because they were asked by the, the head of the MOI to make a film that would engender good relations between Brits and Americans. Um, and I think this tells that story in a way which is, you know, which is old-fashioned and charming. The film within a film works rather well, and I liked it. Uh, Sue White says when to see their finest on Sunday what I now call Super Sunday because it was also the final episode of Line of Duty and Spurs beat Arsenal I'm sure those things have also registered You're a big Line of Duty fan aren't you? You were were very excited about that I am as surprised as the good doctor that this film has been so divisive I admit I was already well disposed to it after the interview with the wonderful Bill Nye on your show when you two were bunking off again However I certainly didn't feel the war was sidelined rather that the insecurity felt by people who were dodging the bombs whilst also worrying about loved ones at war was always there. Yeah. Yes, it wasn't perfect, but it reminded me of films like The Railway Children and more recently The Imitation Game that we do so well. Uh, so that is at number five. Beauty and the Beast is at four, which we've kind of done. Mm. Uh, the Boss Baby is at number three. Still a joke which I... We had a very, a very, very intelligent and well-written letter last week explaining why my inability to get over the problem of it's a baby in a suit. Well, the problem was mine. The problem was not to do with uh, the story itself. I still hold, although I take the point very well, the whole thing is that it's in the mind of the older child who interprets the younger child as a threat and therefore imagines the younger child being a baby in a suit, except for the fact that the film keeps breaking its own rules and it is a baby in a suit. And it, in much the same way as Stalks, I just sat there going, I just can't relax into this idea. It's not working. And it's not just that I can't take fantastical conceits because out on DVD this week or on Monday, A Monster Calls, a film in which a young child is visited by a walking tree. Perfectly happy with that because it makes sense. Uh, And Aidan Hampson says, I saw Boss Baby last week with my stepdaughter. There were 316 ceiling tiles in the cinema. She, she, she <laughs> quite liked it. That's very good. Fast and Furious 8 is at number two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Guardians of the Galaxy, volume two, 
Is and I imagine one? you have a volume I... of correspondence. Yeah, okay, did you see what I did there? 30 years of broadcasting experience. A volume of mail. Thanks. Uh, Kate says, uh, seems hardly worth reviewing, really, since every human in Britain aged 12A or above will already have seen it after the rainy bank holiday weekend. But here's my tuppence, having gone to see it with two very excited 11 and 13-year-olds. I was expecting more, to be honest. More what? More plot, for starters. This was bland TV sci-fi surrounded by a massive dump of CGI, which was at times a bit too much like the psychedelic bits in Doctor Strange, which also left me cold. The witty gags and the great acting from all concerns saved it from oblivion, but it all felt very very navel-gazy. Even the kids whose critical faculties are slightly less on the crit side were hardly raving about it afterwards. Uh, Rose Stevens saw Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy 2 on Monday and loved it. What it lacked in... OMG, this Guardians film is unexpectedly brilliant. It made up <laughs> yes. for in the joy that we all felt in being reunited with our old friends who were able to transport us to a world of mayhem and fantasy which is at times extremely similar to our own. And who doesn't love Chris Pratt? Or Crisp Rat, as my children delight in calling him. Uh, Jamie says, I, I thought I'd disagree with Mark. I do mostly agree with his opinions, but I didn't agree with some of the things about Guardians. Okay. I was a huge fan of the original and even before I'd seen it, I knew it would be brilliant. When I came out of this one, I thought that it was even better than the first. In fact, I wanted to go straight back in and watch it again. I got the exact same feeling I got with the first, and that feeling, Mark, is, wow, this is great. Um, This is Larissa. I watched Got uh, last night whilst visiting a comic book-obsessed friend in Mansfield. The original is my favourite Marvel film, and I had incredibly high expectations for this one. It was so much better than I hoped. I thought they used it as an opportunity to really flesh out the characters, and it was hilarious. Uh, Charlie. Much longer than needed, a flabby, over-sentimental, cheap redemption of horrible people, retrofitted backstory uh, that fails to convince. But despite all of that, a lot of fun. Easy passing of the six-laugh test, some lovely raccoon-based humour, and to an SF and comic geek, an entertaining barbaric universe where high technology is mixed with unsophisticated thugs. Just about keeps going from the first instalment, but I'm apprehensive about a third episode. It feels like we're on course for an overreach flop. What say you? Well... I mean, I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. I don't think it's as good as the first one. I think that it is it is baggy and it does lose its way towards the end when it it all becomes much more smashy, punchy, explosy. But, um, and as I said before, it, it the surprise factor is gone and the surprise factor was a part, not all, but it was a part of what made the first Guardians of the Galaxy so good. And you talked about this in your interview with Chris Pratt that he said that everyone was kind of predicting that this was going to be the first Marvel flop. They all said, you know, here it comes, you know, Marvel's going to actually take a bath with this one. I hadn't even heard those stories. I think I just went in having seen the poster, which looked terrible, and then just started laughing. I didn't, didn't have any sense of how funny it was going to be, and then just really, really enjoyed it. With the second one, from the opening sequence, and I sat behind you in the screening where we saw it, I mean, I laughed all the way through the first five, ten minutes because it opens in really, really great fashion. It's a really great opening. And then after that, I found it really enjoyable. I like being with those characters again. I like the attitude that the film has. You know, I like things like Michael Rooker. Uh, you know, it, it, I said to Nigel Floyd, you know, he's come a long way since Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Do you remember when John McNaughton was over, you know, staying at our houses? Um, It's, there is, I think it's a really, really interesting, but it is baggy. It is baggy and it does, it it does fall apart somewhat. And you said an interesting thing that as somebody who hadn't, uh, you know, you weren't engaged with the first one because you hadn't seen the first one, you felt a little bit like it was an in-joke of which you were not a part. Mm -hmm. Although 
which is a fair criticism. Although I would say, go see the first one. The first one's really. That's really... exactly what Chris Pratt said. Yes, I'm sure he did. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, Jamie, a professional emo. Got to be honest, Mark and Simon, I'm fed up with my sister always writing to get on your show and you reading out my dad's comments practically every week. Well, I shall take the back seat no longer. We saw Guardians on Sunday at the nearest cinema in Stroud. Have to say, masterful. James Gunn really has outdone himself. Like the original, I, um, I was granted comedy, action and the wonderful sounds of the 20th century, but I also loved the additional character development we, that we got with Rocket, Yondu, Nebula and Star-Lord. After the first movie, I wasn't sure where they were going with the other characters, and I expected them to take a backseat here. However, I was pleasantly surprised with the amount of substance the movie provided to bulk out the storyline in less active or comedic moments, as well as the extra locations, customs and races that we were introduced to. Aside from that, the pop culture references, upbeat tunes, excellent comedic pacing made the entire movie a heck of a ride, and I can't wait for the DVD. A heck of a ride, is it? It's a heck, it's a of, a heck of a ride. Um, so thank you very much to Jamie yeah. you don't have to take the back seat anymore no. so there's loads more Guardians correspondence which we may well get to this is Five Live and we're talking movies till four o'clock we're expecting Jessica Chastain at any minute do you remember when this is very unusual because normally this is already sorted or the guest is sitting in the studio yes. with us Meryl when, when we were expecting Meryl Street, Meryl and it was the, the, the time was moving and we weren't yes. quite sure yeah. so in the end we just said when we hear the words I'm Meryl Streep I think it was hi I'm Meryl Streep <laughs> Then we'll stop and carry on. Okay, that was right. Was it hi? I'm. I just thought I'm Meryl Streep. Was it hi? I'm Meryl. I think she said uh, hi. I'm Meryl Streep. Yeah, and And it was. And then you and I started whittering about something else. And in the middle of it, clear as glass, hi. I'm Meryl Streep. And when Meryl says she's on the show, you stop everything. Everything stops. I think I was in the middle of a tip-top showbiz anecdote, and it just. That wasn't going anywhere after that. <laughs> Funnily enough. No. So, you know, it may well be that I have to actually say, hello, Jessica, but it might also be that she just says, hi, hi I'm, I'm Jessica, Jessica Chastain. Stop what you're doing and talk no, no, about no, my no, no, no need to say anything else. Literally no. just, hi, I'm Jessica Chastain, and we will immediately stop what we're doing. Because she uh, she has a new movie out called uh, called Miss Sloan. She does. And, uh, we're gonna well, it's coming that. out next week. Yes. So you're not going to review it? But, well, I'll review it when it comes out next yes, week, yes. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, Lorna in Greenwich. Just a quick note. Actually, I'm going to not read that. Because Lorna in Greenwich is going to move Lorna aside. Lorna in Greenwich moves aside because... For? For Jessica from London. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi, this is Jessica Chastain, I think. Yes, it is. Hi, Jessica. I'm Simon. I'm Mark. Hello, Jessica. Welcome to the programme. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much, Steve, for uh, uh, for joining us. So let's talk about Miss Sloan, which is out next week. So should, we'll review it next week. We're going to talk about it now. Tell us about uh, Elizabeth Sloan. Tell us about this uh, extraordinary character that you're playing. Elizabeth Sloan is a lobbyist in D.C. She, When we meet her, she's a conservative lobbyist, um, very successful, uh, working for free enterprise and less government interference. The gun lobby tries to hire her to kill a bill that is approaching the house um, and to get women into guns. She decides it's not something she wants to do, so she goes and fights for the other side to try to get the bill passed. And it really is a thriller. We learn a lot about American politics. We learn about gender politics, and we never quite know um, what's going to happen next. That's very good. That's a perfect plot summary. So can I just pick you up? So is it, would it be fair enough to say this is a bit like West Wing meets Michael Clayton? 
<laughs> that's yeah, that's a great thing to say okay. because those are two things I love. So uh, when you were describing all the characteristics of Elizabeth there, you I mean, she is work obsessed. She is uh, extremely good at her job. But you you also I just want to ask you about this because you said she's recruited. So she's a conservative lobbyist. And then the gun lobby tried to get her to work for them. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and I think we can talk about this because it's quite early on in the film and you've just referred to the moment. So they said, you know, we want, we want guns to be more female-friendly. Can you help us with that? And you basically, well, Elizabeth Slough, laughs, them out, out loud. laughs them out the room. You know, you yeah. find the whole idea hysterical. So she's a conservative lobbyist, but sh- there is a moral compass there. Yes, but also um, <laughs> in that room there is sexism present i mean um i think someone says right before she starts laughing is um god created men and women and samuel colt made them equal yes (laughs) which is incredibly demeaning especially for someone like elizabeth sloan who's smarter than anyone in that room um so i think for her she's not um she doesn't need the gun lobby she's fiscally conservative but um she is not about to be bought um, or demeaned by a man who thinks he's the most powerful uh, one in the room. Uh, the world of political lobbying is something which has been uh, discussed and argued about for, for a very long time. What, what did, where did you go uh, in DC? What, who were the people that you followed to get, try and get a handle on how this world works? Well, we had um, consultants for the film um, for lobbying, but for me it was important to meet with women because... You know, as we know, American politics is um, is mostly it's a it's a men's game, and I needed to talk to women that navigated those waters and were successful. So I met with about a dozen women, and they took me to Capitol Hill. I shadowed uh, one of them uh, at a fundraiser. I shadowed another one while they were lobbying their case. Um, we got to talk about a lot of things: drug use in D.C. and sexism in D.C. and um, money in politics. And I don't know how I would have created this character without um, hanging out with these women. Also, fun fact, the majority of them were were wearing black nail polish, which was really shocking to me because I always, I I think it was, you know, I think it was because it's aggressive and it's still like done it's still polished and um put together but there's there is an intimidation factor with wearing black so have you assembled elizabeth sloan uh, obviously partly from mainly from from the script and and your own thought process but based on these small number of women who are doing this job now Absolutely. Um, I also read Jack Abramoff's book. He's a, an American lobbyist who was very, very successful um, and did some very bad things and ended up in jail. And I and his book is a very good read. Uh, and, and that was very influential to me as well. And then I also based her off of my Hollywood agent, not in personality, uh, but in the way that she enters rooms and in, in the way that she um, dresses and the energy that she puts out in the industry. And you said that uh, it, there's obviously a lot of politics involved and there's a lot of gender politics involved. What mirror does this hold up, do you think, to the political process and the gender process in America at the moment? Well, you know, we were making the film originally, we thought it was about gun regulation and campaign financing. And then the closer we got to releasing it and watching um, the American election, realized how strongly uh, gender politics uh, are are involved in this film. Um, 
you know, in the first debate between Trump and, and Hillary Clinton, media pundits were, you know, giving Clinton a critique for being overprepared. I have never heard <laughs> anyone um, have that critique before. I've no, especially, I've never heard a man um, being criticized for being overprepared. I prefer the leader of a nation be overprepared. I prefer my taxi driver be overprepared. I think it's a good quality to have, but for some reason, society feels threatened by women that are ambitious, that are prepared. Um, and Elizabeth Sloan is those that she she's. She's absolutely a representation of that. And uh, I think it's a call to arms uh, for women to know that it's an all right thing to be. Uh, this film's been directed by John Madden. Looking through your, the list of movies that you've made, you've worked with you know, Guillermo del Toro, Catherine Bigelow, Terrence Malick, Chris Nolan. I mean, an astonishing collection of directors. Who do you have left that you really want to work with? Who's, who's your ambition to work with? Oh, there's so many. I, I would love to work with Mikhail Haneke. I would love to work with... Um, Andrea Arnold, um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, Spike Jones, uh, yeah, um, it's just it just could go on and on. Um, Spielberg, I'd love to work with him. Coppola, yeah. Scorsese. And, and <laughs> Mark mentioned John Madden, uh, who you worked with on the debt, and who of course has directed this movie. And there's a, there's a, there's a nice tie in there because. Um, when we talked about the debt, we had Tom Wilkinson on the movie uh, on on the show, yeah. and Tom. It was in that interview when he he said he because in, in the credits it says and and Tom, Tom Wilkinson. Wilkinson. <laughs> and I said, "How does that happen?" And he said, "You have to ask for the and. That's what you have to do. You ask for <laughs> big the thing, end. big thing." Anyway, and Tom also was on the show with Gugu and Bartaraw when they did Bell together, and Gugu and Bartaraw plays. Uh, she's like the well. Would you say oh, yeah. it's fair enough to say she's the conscience of this film? Absolutely, of Miss Sloan. Absolutely, yes, of, of Miss Sloan. Yes, yeah. Gugu is the heart. Uh, I think of the film. She's the one that is able to um, reach into Elizabeth's humanity. Um, and uh, also, a thing that I really like about the film is we see Elizabeth mentoring women. Um, uh, which I think is very important because I know I, I am where I am today because of the incredible women that have mentored me. Uh, and and Elizabeth and Gugu's character, Esme, there is that very complicated um, relationship where Elizabeth is mentoring Gugu, um, Esme. However, she oversteps um, the boundaries of what is appropriate uh, and... Um, exposes some secrets that Esme is not ready to uh, let the public in on. Yeah, I think she's terrific in every film that we've seen her in. Gugu and Bartaro just seems to be uh, a transcendent presence. Uh, can I ask you about the about the script? Um, yeah. Because I think it's a first-timer, isn't it? John Pereira, yeah, uh, who, um, who wrote the screenplay, which I thought at times was like verging on Aaron Sorkin. You know, it's... it's very, you know, there's lots of words, which you, you speak most of them, and it's very fast. Absolutely, it's a, it's definitely in a Sorkin world. Uh, Johnny Pereira, he's a, he's an English um, gentleman, and he was I think he was living in Singapore. He had studied law and he was a lawyer, and he decided as soon as he paid off his college loans, he said that's it. Um, I don't like this job. He quit. Uh, law, moved to Singapore, was teaching English, and he thought, you know, I'm going to try my hand at screenwriting. And this is his first script, believe it or not. And I think it's so fantastic. And he's going to have such a career ahead of him. Jessica, looking ahead, um, you're down as... Are you playing Tammy Winnett in, um, in George and Tammy? Is that happening? 
Yeah, I'm going to do that with Josh Brolin as George Jones. And can you tell us about preparing for that role? Well, there's a lot of country music to listen to, and um, to you know, I'm, I've read her daughter's book, and uh, I've, you know, um, worked with T-Bone Burnett, who's going to do the music for the film. Wow, we don't it, quite it, know. It, it immediately sounds fantastic, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. it's going to be so fun. I mean, that is a wig and hair, like that is a hair show and sequin show. And um, I just can't wait. Um, we don't know quite know when we're going to do it. But for me, um, I just want to start now because uh, that's not a, a character that you just want to show up and wing. And are you doing your own singing in it? Yes, I am. What, and I mean, that's, that's a mountain to climb, surely, doing, doing Tammy Wynette singing. Absolutely. It's a, it's a huge mountain to climb. I mean, we had... In college, um, of course, we had singing classes, um, but country music is a whole new beast. And so thank goodness I'm, I'm working with the best. I mean, T-Bone Burnett really is yeah. an incredible artist, an incredible teacher. So uh, it's a real pleasure for me. And I remember uh, Reese Witherspoon, uh, when she was on a few years ago, talked, yeah, talked about how T-Bone basically produced and all the singing lessons and everything came from yeah. there. So if you've got T-Bone there, you're good. this is... Well, it's it's also worth pointing out that uh, Tom Hiddleston came on the show just uh, last year and performed live with us, having done such a, such right. a brilliant job. So obviously, Jessica, if you're back in the UK when George and Tammy <laughs> comes not. out... Will you have a, I, I think she said yes, didn't she? I, I heard Absolutely yes, that's what I heard. Absolutely not. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> and uh, and just one, one final point, Jessica, while you're with it, because we mentioned Tom Wilkinson are saying, ask for the and... We were then got we then got an email from one of your co-stars in this film, Mark Strong. Oh yes. Who then introduced another aspect to this game, and he said you ought to have the Mark Strong but, but. game, which is where you see a movie which features this so and star, so, so and so, but, but somebody else. Yeah, oh. Oh no. And that's Mark Strong's idea. Yes. Your co-star, who is who, uh, he's another one of the moral hearts of this story. And he did ind- indeed coin the phrase the Mark Strong butt game, and yes. that is what he's referring to. Which oh, fantastic! Yeah. But who would want that? I mean, because that's a title like <laughs> "and is great" because it's like we have this person and this person is like building up, and then you go. But we have this person. <laughs> but we have yes. this person. However, the bad news <laughs> Sorry is about this. this person's also on. Uh, anyway, and, and it's a fantastic cast uh, for Miss Sloan. It stars Jessica Chastain. Jessica, we really appreciate you talking to us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, Jessica Chastain, star of uh, Miss Sloan, which opens next week, and Mark will review it then. Yeah. That was excellent. And I was thinking, I don't think. Jessica's I love editor. the fact that you just reviewed the interview, so that was excellent. Yeah, I, I'm giving her full marks. Yeah, yeah, she's great. She's she's she can come back again. Although she, I, the... I definitely heard that what she said was, yes, I'll definitely come live on the show and I'll sing. Come that, in. Was, that was what she said, wasn't she? Wasn't it? I, I, almost, almost certainly. Precisely what she said. Yeah. Uh, so it's eight minutes to three o'clock. Uh, let me tell you that while that was happening, Kevin Howells came up and he wanted to talk about the cricket, but we said, back off, Kevin because we've got Jessica Chastain on. So he said, can you pass on then that England have beaten Ireland by seven wickets at Bristol? They take a 1-0 lead in the two-match one-day international series. Actually, if I'd had any any nous at all, I could have told Jessica that, and then we could have had a conversation about the cricket. We could have done. I think she'd have been up for that. Yeah. So uh, let's get some reviews away. Uh, what's out then? So Whiskey Galore, which is a remake of the original Ealing Classic, um, which is it's a weird thing. I remember when I was uh, young... 
uh, there was a week at the Phoenix and East Finchley in which they did a, a week of, of you know of classic titles from so you know Passport to Pimlico, Lady Killers, Lavin Hill Mob, um, Kind Hearts and Coronets, and uh, Whiskey Galore. And I remember seeing them all in, in in a week, and it was like the most brilliant education. But absolutely loving it to, to feel Thunderbolt. They showed Man in the White Suit as well. And uh, so the story, which is apparently you know in, in, inspired by real events and you know based on a novel, um, basically there's a shipwreck off a fictional Scottish island. And uh, the ship has got whiskey on it, and uh, the island wouldn't you know it? You know, they think, oh, there's a whole bunch of whiskey on that ship. We, let, let's let's go and relieve the ship of the whiskey before it goes down. Uh, obviously, trying to you know get get it away from the customs and excise people. It's a really really famous film, and it's a really really brilliant film. It's a film which is you know fabulously stood the t- test of time. And I remember thinking immediately when I knew that there was a remake of it. I, I'm not entirely sure what. The point of doing it again is the Coen brothers did The Lady Killers and at least when they did that, it changed the setting and it changed the premise and it took it somewhere else and it was rubbish. But it was... Did you see... You saw the remake of Lady Killers with Tom... Um, with our friend Tom. With our friend Tom, I don't think yeah. Was, if Tom... Tom didn't talk to us about that film, no. so I couldn't be bothered to go and see his... Well, it re- and it really wasn't very good and it was one of those things that you should... Anyway, so what this does is it, it doesn't even do that sort of major change. I mean, there are certain changes, but it doesn't really do that. It just rehashes the original riffs but done in a way which has been done well, I mean you know in in a way which is sort of perfectly whimsical but the a way that probably owes more to um the modern dad's army movie than it does to anything else um you know Eddie Izzard is in it as the uh, the uptight uh, British soldier under whose nose all this stuff uh, is happening um I mean it's 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 put together efficiently enough, but I, you just wonder what exactly is the point of it. The really strange thing is there's a scene in it in which the, the, this phone box appears quite a lot. So there's a phone box and there's, you know, coastal roads and there's, you know, breathtaking scenery, which puts you... You start thinking about Local Hero, which, of course, is ironic because Local Hero, when Bill Forsyth was making Local Hero, the, t- the titles that he was looking back to were obviously Whiskey Galore, and then he described it at another point as uh, Brigadoon meets Apocalypse Now. And so it's just it's just this kind of strange sort of shuffling match in which you you know it reminds you of a thing that was influenced by the original thing. And all the time you're watching it, you just keep thinking, well, yeah, okay, fine. This is sending me back to a previous to a previous film, which I don't know why it needed to have anything else done to it, and it just feels, I mean, not terrible, not terrible, just terribly inconsequential. Which is all no, I was which is say, what? which is almost worse because you don't want, but surely. I mean, I was quite intrigued by the way you were describing it. I was thinking, actually, that sounds quite fun. But you've seen the original Whiskey Yeah, well, but years ago. But in terms of a cinematic... How many people listening to this will have seen that at the cinema? I... Not well, I saw it at the cinema. You're not typical. No, OK, but... Oh, all right, fine, but I guarantee that most people will have seen So you're saying the point is that it allows you... Well, wouldn't it be better to just re-release... Uh, I'm just... Well, yeah, well, maybe re-release the original, okay. but maybe it's a, a different experience. Can I get another... Um, I think you've uh, got four minutes. OK, so The Journey, which is um odd film, starts out by explaining the troubles, OK, and it has a, a, a text on screen which says this. In 2006, the leading players, I'm quoting directly, met in Scotland for the troubles to try and hammer out a la- final and lasting peace agreement. The success of the talks depended on unionist leader Ian Paisley agreeing to share power with his mortal enemy, the Irish Republican Martin McGuinness. This is, I'm quoting what it says on the screen. These extremists were polar opposites who had never previously spoken, but were forced by circumstance or fate to make an historic journey together. This story imagines that journey. And then what we get is an imagined account of them sharing a uh, people carrier together, going to the airport to get a plane so that he can get back for um, uh, for a, a family do. And 
it's an interesting premise, you know, the idea of, uh, particularly when you've got, you, you know, uh, all this stuff going on in the background. It is, and, it, you know, Tim Spall and uh, Colin Meaney, and, uh, you know, it's so it's an interesting premise, and it sounds like it will make for a fascinating drama. And it starts quite well with the two of them in the back of the uh in the in the back of the people carrier and not talking and you know obviously because they haven't spoken before there's all this tension and when they go and start talking into so what they eventually start doing is they they start bickering about mobile phones about what somebody's got a mobile phone signal and then somebody else hasn't got a mobile phone single signal and you know can I borrow your mobile phone well of course you can't because you know essentially we're you know we're mortal enemies but then what happens is it then turns out that the guy who's driving the, the, the transporter is in touch with John Hurt, who is essentially working for the uh, Special Forces, who, uh, for, for MI5, and is giving the driver a constant political commentary about why it is that these two people in the back of his car must get on because this is going to have historical consequences. So all the way through, we've got this kind of uh, Greek chorus telling us what the action means. And then the journey, it's not just a journey with them talking, the, the car, they get off the road, they go through a forest, there's a thing when they have, there's a tyre, there's a bit with a deer, there's a bit when they get out of the car. And suddenly the whole the whole premise which is it's a journey of two people sitting in a car who basically haven't spoken before being stuck together in the back of a car for a period of 45 50 minutes one hour in which any conversation they have is actually incredibly loaded sort of gets thrown out the and, the, and it's and it overreaches itself i know it says that it's a fictional uh, account but there's fiction and there's you know there's fictional um, it's a shame because there are some very nice performances. As I said, uh, you know, uh, Tim Spall's very, very good. Um, Toby Stevens is Tony Blair, although obviously whenever we think of Tony Blair, you think of Michael Sheen doing the, you know, the, the perfect Tony Blair. And it does all remind you of, um, you remember The Deal, you know, which was an, a sort of imagined version of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in that restaurant in Islington or wherever it, it was is. Dave, and Dave Morrissey. Dave yes, Morrissey, yes. brilliant. Yes, yeah, fine. And that was a film in which you could actually believe that the conversation that they were having on screen was a real conversation. The problem with this is it's an interesting idea, but it's an interesting idea that then immediately overstates itself and steps out in, into the realm, not of fictionalised, interesting, you know, how might this explain it, but stuff which simply isn't believable, despite some very good performances. Uh, OK, so that is... Uh, the Journey. And will we find that easy to find, do you think? Uh, I, I don't think it'll be playing a massive amount of multiplexes. By the way, Lorna in Greenwich, who I started to read the email out for a yes. while back. Just a quick note to let you know that until recently, I worked with someone who shall remain nameless, who was also a journalist at Private Eye, and he was an LTL member of the church. He, was very, he very much appreciated your mentions of the magazine and talked about inviting you out for lunch. I hope this happens so you can keep up the mentions. Very so good. We, so we might have a nice, a nice big lunch. <laughs> a nice big lunch. Your way. Very good. Uh, Laura in Greenwich, thank you for hanging around. You're listening to a BBC Five Live podcast. Kermode Mayo's film review. If you like this, you might also like this. Flintoff, Savage and the Ping Pong Guy. Is everybody's hunger in sport different? I was hungry. I wanted to be the best. For me, you win or that's it. To find out more about our range of podcasts, click, tap or swipe. BBC.com. Hey Mark, are you the Mark from Wittertainment where the podcast won uh, the People's Vote? I am. Is that the one you're holding up at the moment? Yeah. Can I fondle that award for a little moment? It feels like uh, like a piece of perspex. It feels exactly like a piece of perspex. But well done anyway, and thanks very much indeed for all the votes. Thanks to all the listeners. Um, Anton. The Listener's Choice Awards, this is very much their award. Hey, I've just been cheesy. Oh yeah. You were super. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay, so uh, Anton. No, I'm just going to do. So, I just want to do some twelve A bits and pieces, which which. Oh, go ahead. Yes, a long running conversation anyway. But yeah, Jules, it's not going away any time in the near future. Jules in Cambridge, listening to your twelve A discussion on the. <coughs> excuse me, on the show. On the. <laughs> excuse me. Show. If you're interested, in, I listen to every Saturday okay. while right. sorting out heaps and heaps of family washing, which is the only reason the rest of them get away without doing it. Okay. I wondered about the safeguarding aspect of the twelve A certificate. Yes. My work means I have higher-level safeguarding training and have seen concerns raised before when parents have exposed their children to inappropriate material within the home, including films. My question is, how does this differ if they're at the cinema? And would the cinema be complicit in this? It is certainly difficult to police, but I think cinemas should use the it means 12 and less exceptional and you think your kids can cope with the content rule and stick to this nationally. Yes. Anyway, see you in that bar on the top deck at the stern of the ship. <coughs> She's on the cruise. Yes, I know. I, thank you. I did. Fe- I know that I'm okay. slow, but I'm not that slow. Maureen says, dear cast iron and bath. This is a <laughs> reference to our new line of bathware. Yes, <coughs> which, the, which was advertised so lavishly in Private Eye magazine. The BFI's notion that under 12s would only be brought to a 12A certificate film in exceptional circumstances by mm. a responsible adult yep, yep, who's yep. made a considered judgment that the film yep. is appropriate to the child was clearly hopelessly optimistic. On Saturday, I went to see Guardians of the Galaxy... And the entire row behind me was occupied by boys under the age of 12. Mm. I'm a secondary school teacher, and it was obvious to me that these boys were at primary school even before the certificate came up. And one said loudly, 12? Wow, we're going to (laughs) die. There were presumably some adults with the group, but the boys were all sat in a row with no adults among them to ensure that they were coping with the violence and scenes involving the... (laughs) If it is... Which I'd forgotten. Okay, fine. Now Maureen points it out, I had... Presumably that's why it's the 12. If it is too complicated to ban unreasonably young children, the BFI should perhaps look at ensuring that the ratio of adults to children is kept to a level which ensures each child can sit with an adult rather than watching the film effectively unsupervised. I enjoyed the film, but I suspect I will never quite feel the same way about Kurt Russell after the... Thing. Best regards. Can I anyway? Can I read you one. something from an interview that I did with Robin Duval, who was the head of the BBFC when he stood down, and he was the guy that oversaw the introduction of the Twelve A. Okay. Okay. This is I'm reading directly. I'm quoting myself, quoting him. When we researched the idea of an advisory twelve category, seventy percent of those questioned, because they did a huge public research, were in favour. And although we expected a certain amount of people to complain about five-year-olds being able to watch a James Bond film. We were caught off guard by complaints that those five-year-olds are so bored that they run up and down the aisles and disrupt the film for everyone else. Put bluntly, cinema staff are indiscriminately letting babes in arms and toddlers in to see 12A-rated movies, despite a very clear understanding that it was not expected to accommodate very young children. And that was from an interview that was published in 2004, Okay, so however long ago it was, um, back then uh, Robin Duvall was saying, you know, it's really the cinema's need to take control of this. And evidently that is not happening. Mayo at bbc.co.uk, 85058, what else is out and brand new? So Unlocked, um, which is a uh, sort of uh, a thriller starring uh, Numi Rapace. Now, I haven't seen the new, I'm assuming it's in, I don't know whether there's embargoes, whatever it is. I haven't seen the new, fine. So I'm not asking your opinion on it, but uh, you've seen the new Alien. Ask me anything that you want about the new Alien film. Ask me anything. Is it good? 
We can't possibly say because you're embargoed. Okay, fine. But uh, Numi Rapace, who was, uh, you know, one of the best things about Prometheus. Yes. Yes. Are we agreeing on that? Yes. Yes. We are agreed because uh, Prometheus is not embargoed. (laughs) Prometheus is out. Okay, so she's great. She always uh, has been Anyone ask me anything about her? No, I was just, I was actually, what I was trying to do was to give the illusion that somehow the programme is a finely knitted weave. Yes. In which we are both involved in this. Because I was just momentarily involving you because I know that you haven't seen Unlocked. That's, that is also true. Thank you. But okay, I have so, seen Alien Covenant. I know, and I haven't, but you can't tell me about it because it's embargoed, apparently. Can, yes, I think I think. Can you express right. yourself through the medium of modern dance or mime? No, well, I would be able to, but unfortunately the, webcam, the webcam means on. that that's covered and too. the way in which your physical performance works is that you would literally just have to raise an eyebrow and everybody would know that you had reviewed Exactly, so okay. I am not. I, uh, suffice to say that I've seen it. Numi Rapace in Unlocked, which is a different film, oh, is yes. a uh, CIA agent working undercover in London. She is called upon to interrogate somebody who is tied up in a biological terror plot. She has a terrible uh, guilty conscience and she is you know, uh, something has happened in the past which she has failed to prevent, so she no longer feels that she is fit for the job. But she is called upon nonetheless to do it. She has a superior who is played by Michael Douglas in that kind of shark-like, smarmy, smooth way that Michael Douglas always does. You know, you half expect him at any moment to see him wearing a V-neck sweater, dancing in a nightclub in, you know, with Sharon Stone. Or naked in a bath with Matt Damon. Or naked in a bath with Matt Damon, exactly so. So, anyway, uh, she is called upon to do this and it, it very soon becomes clear that nobody is what they seem. Everybody is involved in twisty-turny double-crosses. Unexpectedly, after one of the first twisty-turny double-crosses, she goes back to her apartment where she finds it being burgled by a cat burglar who turns out to be none other than Orlando Bloom. No. Who, yes, I know. I mean, of all the people who get a cat burgled your house, turns out it's Orlando Bloom. He's making off with the telly, OK? But then she stops him making off with the telly, but then it turns out that he's combat trained and he might be useful. He gets the whiff that there's a bit of a job going on and he might want to be part of it. She's having none of it, but neither is he. God blimey, here's a clip. Didn't I just get you out of a whole heap of trouble? You have my gratitude. Well, I'll trade your goodwill and appreciation for what going on in London that involves the CIA, dead prisoners and a terror strike. Goodbye, Jack. Bad idea shedding me, I heard too much. I'm an unknown variable now. Tactically, it's a no-brainer. You really want me around. I'm useful and I like trouble. Goodbye. You're saying the stakes aren't high enough? Oh, they are high enough. Well then, I can help you. I've had my trouble since the war. Clearly not so well adjusted, but I'm combat tested. Right now, I'm thinking I'm the only friend you got. Go home, Jack. I am home. Where are you? Any idea? Did he say <clears throat> I'm I'm combat tastic? Combat tested. But combat- I thought he said I'm combat tastic. <laughs> That's not a bad London accent. I have to give him his due. That's not a bad accent. He's put, uh, he's putting it on with it. Uh, excuse me. Sir, I like a bit of trouble. I like a bit of trouble. I've heard worse. Yeah, no, I've been in a bit of trouble, Step but now forward. I've got a bit of trouble. Oh, God blimey, I've got a bit of trouble. He was born in Canterbury. Yes, I am. I know. It's not that it's a massive stretch, but and like, these aren't words I ever thought I'd say out loud. Where's Danny Dyer when you need him? I mean, here's what happened. I was in a screening room with this, OK, and when Orlando Bloom, cat burglar, cat burglar, Orlando Bloom is unveiled, um, there was an audible titter. And then when Orlando started talking, God blimey, missus, I'm taking your television. I'll be up the chimney and up the apples and pears. It, I didn't think it was. Uh, it, it, it didn't there was a wave of... Now, no, okay. 
It's... Mm. Huh. Okay, so if you can get past... Oh, and the bloom, la, 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 easy, la, ba, da, da. I think you're exaggerating here. <laughs> okay, you need to... You need to see... The, do do I... you think when he said... He said, I've had a bit of trouble. Trouble? I was just thinking he's better than Forrest Whitaker. Okay, that's really lowering the bar. You're referring to Forrest Whitaker in uh, um, in the Crying Game. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Fine. But that is that's really not fair. Forrest Whitaker's from a different country. Forrest Whitaker's American. I mean, Americans doing those kind of you know things, and it's not just it's not just the voice. Which obviously, what you're not seeing is the whole you know tattoos on me neck because I'm a you know I'm a geezer. I'm a bit of a one. I've had a bit of a. <laughs> Are you in 42nd Street at the moment? Yes, I am. I think you could just sing and dance out of this building. So, anyway, so there's all that that you have to get over. Um, And it's funny thing about it is, I mean, it's directed by Michael Apted, who is a very fine director, has made a very good and diverse range of movies in the past. Um, It's from a screenplay by uh, Peter O'Brien, which has some interesting ideas in it. And then it also has, I mean, Tony Collette, you know, sort of doing the, you know, the tight crop sort of tough performance that she does. John Malkovich doing, you remember that bit in being John Malkovich when suddenly the whole world turns into John Malkovich and they're all just going Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. So on the one hand, you've got Numi Rapace being good. On the other hand, you've got Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. And on the other hand, you go, oh, I'm Orlando Bloom. Oh, yes, I am. I'm going to nick your television and then I'm going to be the war. <laughs> And you go, okay. well, the overarching seriousness of all of this is largely escaping me. And it's very, very workman. It it is at best sort of pedestrian and workman like every single person in it is just doing the thing that they do. In, and I didn't believe in any of them. I did not believe in any of them. I mean, I'd, I'd li- literally, so we could go, okay, that's him doing that, and that's her doing that, and that's them doing that. And it's, you know, nuts and bolts, nothing you haven't seen before, some interesting ideas, but not as many as it needs to go, and, and a few laugh out loud. Is it moments. worth seeing? Because I w- do something, Numi Rapace is. He's very good. Very, he's he's very, very good in very everything. Good. Very good in absolutely everything. So just to walk down a path that we've been before, yes. is it worth. Because a lot of people think, I'm going to go and see that Numi Rapace is in it. Mm hmm. Is it worth seeing for her performance? If you are a Numi Rapace completist, it's fine. Although there are there are movies like um, there's that Numi Rapace thriller with the baby alarm. Do you remember that? Which was a very very small release. And Numi Rapace is in a block of flats, and she has a baby alarm. And her baby alarm it picks up a baby alarm in another flat, and here's something terrible going on. And it's a I mean, it's a really sort of low budget film, but it's brilliant, and it's it's her. It's all to do with her performance, and she's great, and she can do great big budget movies as well. And when we had the American remake of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and all the rest of it, you did think, well, I'm not entirely sure why we need this because somebody has already done it perfectly. And uh, I think she's a really impressive talent, but I don't think that the movie is up to her level. Anyway, it's unlocked. Well, and it's unlocked. What kind of certificate would that be then? I, I imagine it's a 15. I imagine it's a 15 because it contains some dicking of your television going up the chimbley. La, 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 la. Is that illegal? Well, I think... It, it, is it illegal to, 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 to act in that way yes. if you're... 
Yes, it probably ought to be. Okay, it's not one of his finest. Now I'm guessing that might not be movie of the week. But okay. anyway, what else? That's uh, give us something that's intrigued you. Okay, so Mindhorn, which is um, basically a sort of uh, a, a spoof uh, detective story. So the idea is that back in the 1980s there was a TV show called Mindhorn, uh, starring this uh, actor Richard Thorncroft. It's an 80s detective show that kind of takes a bit from Steve Austin and takes a little bit from Bergerac. He's a detective on an island, the Isle of Man, and um, he has been bionically altered so that he has an eye which can literally see the truth. And so it's, you know, an 80s throwback rubbish TV show. It hasn't got a talking car, but he's got an all-seeing eye, and it's one of the things... Blah, blah, blah. Fast forward to the future, uh, Richard Thorncroft is now a washed-up uh, actor, uh, played by Julian Barrett, and uh, nothing's happening. He's balding, he's paunching, he's now doing adverts for orthopaedic socks. Uh, it appears that everything has uh, everything in his career has dried up, and he is basically taking any auditions that go, no matter what they are. Here is a clip. I speak the truth. I am a feared of no man. I am a feared of no creature. I am my own man. I am Clifton of Port Antonio. Do you feel me? Yeah, that's incredible. That's, that's literally incredible. <clears throat> thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Really, I mean, I don't know what to say, but thank you. We're good. We've got everything. I've really seen everything I could possibly want. You sure? Oh, yeah. OK. Well, acting aside, it's been great to catch up. <laughs> Kenny B. <laughs> this guy's one crazy hombre back in the day. Do you remember that hotel in Maidstone? Oh, who can, who, can, who can forget that? We did a tour of the Medway Basin. Thank you. And this fella... <laughs> well, they'll have to repay for that hotel room. <laughs> yeah. OK, the B-Man! Already. Who is that? Not a clue. That is, of course, uh, Kenneth Chuckles Branner playing himself, along with si uh, Simon uh, Chuckles Callow, who also plays himself, um, and a couple of other cameos. So the story is you know, his career is completely washed up. Then he gets a, uh, a phone call from the police in the Isle of Man. They have a suspected serial killer who will speak only to Mindhorn, believes that Mindhorn is a real character. So he said, they say, can you come and talk to him on the phone in character? He then sees this as a career-reviving opportunity. You know, TV cop helps, helps real-life cops solve crime and thinks that somehow it will be a fantastic publicity opportunity, so he has to go back into character back to the Isle of Man, back to his old stomping ground, where all these sort of ghosts of the past are around. The woman who, with whom he used to co-star, brilliantly played by Essie Davis, is now together with his former stuntman, who has one of those sort of smoking a pancake Dutch accents that you remember from Austin Powers. Um, Steve Coogan is a character who was in uh, his show who had a spin-off series called Windjammer and has now become very, very successful and runs a club called Jammers. And it's that kind of... It's that comedy of the failing British actor who desperately wants to be taken. So there's an awful lot of Alan Partridge in it. There's an awful lot of uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place in it. There's an awful lot of that, you know, John Cleese comedy of embarrassment, the, 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 the fear of humiliation uh, and shame. Um, it begins very, very well, and it ends very, very well. It ends with this fantastic soft rock ballad about you can't handcuff the wind, which is, you know, which really made me laugh out loud. It's filmed in the Isle of Man, but surprisingly for a film made in the Isle of Man, it's set in the Isle of Man. Because usually when the Isle of Man is in films, it's playing other things. So it's playing Cornwall in Stormbreaker or it's playing Ireland in Waking Ned or it's playing New York in the 30s in Me and Orson Welles. But you really have to go... I mean, you know, you start thinking about films like 
no limit uh, for it to be a film, you know, set in and <clears throat> on the Isle of Man. And so obviously, for me, I'm going, oh, you know, there's Laxey Will, that's really lovely. And look, there's Douglas Prom, that's really lovely because I have a real fondness for the island anyway. Really? But I, you must tell I've, me. I've never mentioned it before. But it's one of those things in which uh, the weaknesses of it are that it does feel a little bit like a 30-minute television sketch stretched out over a 90-minute movie, which is kind of inevitable. Uh, on the other hand... When the jokes land, they are properly funny. There is just enough in the TV series, in the idea of the TV series, that you can just about imagine that it might have existed. Because if you remember 1980s television, if you're of a certain age, you're pulling that face which says that you are of that certain age. I'm pulling the face that says I was on it, 1980s television. (laughs) 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 Sorry, I forgot. But not in those shows. Yes, OK, well, it might therefore be too much of a toe curling. I could show you some Best of Magic from ITV. Best of Magic? Best of Magic. Is that a show that you presented? I was one of the presenters. And did you present the Best of Magic? I mean, did, 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 was it literally what it sounds like? It was. So yeah. what did you do? You go like, here is somebody doing Soaring Here's the Here's someone doing on. magic. Ta-da! Did you, have a, did you have like a television suit that you wore for it? Well... <laughs> Yes, I suppose, in as much as there was a clothing budget. Yeah. So yes. you bought so you bought clothes in order to wear for the television yes. for the for the thing. Yeah. Do you still have it? No. No, you no. don't slip into it later than no, night. No, that looks no. remarkably like the stuff you wear. I don't on think daily it looks basis. anything like this, actually, Simon. I don't think you've ever you've ever been quite as well dressed as I am mm. right now this second. No, anyway, on, on TV could, in the eighties. Okay, if before we drift off into utterly into the realms of nostalgia. So anyway, uh, so in the case of Mindhorn, it is funny. It is sporadically hilarious. It is somewhat, you know, uh uh, sort of messy around the edges, and there are longueurs in it. But generally, I laughed, you know, I passed the six laughs test easily, and I did enjoy it. And there are moments in it in which it is, you know, quite effectively toe-curling. My, my reservation is that it does feel like the format is too long to entirely sustain the idea. And we have seen this idea done before in, you know, other areas, but it's done well and with a certain degree of gusto. And the Isle of Man can take the jokes about the Isle of Man on the chin. They long, they, they have done, you know, long, and they will continue to do so. So, generally, with some reservations, it's a thumbs up. I just Googled Best of Magic. Oh, yes. Put my name in. And, and you I, came up. With a picture of... Me and John Lydon. <laughs> so what? That's certainly not going to be. Was John Lydon on Best of no, Magic? No, 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 he wasn't. But that's. I'm just saying that's just what's come up. Okay, fine. Anyway, can I do another film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So okay. I have. And I, I pride myself on spotting the movie of the week Who? as it goes through. I haven't spotted anything yet. Okay, keep going. Okay, I was quite keen about um, Mindhorn. I think wasn't I? Yeah, you, you were quite well, quite keen. Okay, okay, fine. So I think a movie of the week. You have to be slightly more than. Quite keen. A dog's purpose. Um, so this will be it. Adapta- Pardon me. This will be it. Adaptation of a novel. I, okay, fine. Uh, directed by Lassa Halstrom, who, amongst other things, made uh, My Life as a Dog and, more importantly, Hotchie's a, a Dog's Tale. So, um, Josh Gad provides the voice of the dog, who, over the course of the movie, which lasts five decades, is variously reincarnated as different dogs, same personality, but different dogs. Because obviously, you know, dog lifespans are shorter than human lifespans. So the the idea of the story is that a dog spirit inhabits a number of different lives. So uh, he's a golden retriever puppy in one story. He's a police department German shepherd in another. He's an unloved yard dog in another. He's a St Bernard mix in another. And throughout, we hear him offering a kind of 
sort of, you know, phone naive uh, take on the world and, and on the humans that he can say, what are the humans doing? Well, oh, I love this. This smells so fabulous. This place smells of, of goat. And, uh, you know, why are those humans uh, licking each other's faces? So it's got that kind of commentary going on all the way through about what the humans are doing. And uh, the human handles range from a young boy who has the puppy to, later on in the movie, Dennis Quaid. Here's a clip. I'm going to make a bet you're hungry. Oh, you must be. Nobody likes my cooking. Don't look at me like that. You can't stay here. You gotta go home. You belong to somebody. Home? Yes, yes, I'm home. Go home, Doc. Go home. You're a stubborn one, aren't you? And yes, indeed, he is, and that's sort of part of the story's charm. Now, you may remember that back in January, um, a Dog's Purpose made the headlines because, in a bad way, that there was a, a video clip that was released on uh, some news sort of streaming site, um, TMZ, I think it was, that apparently showed a dog, a stunt dog, in the movie being mistreated, being forced to jump into some water that it didn't want to go into. Um, there was outrage on Twitter. There were calls from boycotts, uh, uh, for boycotts of the films. Uh, I think Petter uh, called for um, a boycott as well. Then Gavin Pallone, who was the, one of the producers, responded by saying, which is interesting, I mean, he's a, you know, a vegan and a great animal rights guy, and saying that he had watched all the footage and uh, had said that you know that it's true what the dog had dog handler apparently tries to force the dog for 35 40 seconds to go into the water and in a separate film it looks like its head goes under the water and these two things are absolutely inexcusable and shouldn't have happened but he then goes on to say that although he takes full responsibility for it although he wasn't there on set to say uh, I hold myself accountable because even though I was not present I knew and had written about how ineffective the AHA which is the American Humane Association which monitors animal action on a set can be because he's actually somebody who's an advocate for animal protection on sets then pointed out that the dog involved was quite well there was then a full investigation later on i think it was about a month later the aha issued a statement which said independent third-party investigation conducted by a respected animal cruelty expert into the treatment of animals and filming of dogs purpose concluded that an edited video given to the gossip site tmz mischaracterized the events on set the decisions by the individual or individuals who captured and deliberately edited the footage and then waited longer than 15 months to release the manipulated video only days before the movie's premiere raises serious questions about their movies and ethics. So basically the whole thing was this story emerged, they mistreated dogs, then the producer said I'm a great animal rights activist, if that is true then I'm really, really shocked and then an investigation said actually it's not true, it's to do with a mis uh, misreading of the video. Blah, blah. The one good thing about all this is it has raised the issue of uh, animal rights. And incidentally, if you are interested in the issue of animal rights, I mean, go, for example, and look at the stories of what happened on the making of Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, which people now blithely take to be a masterpiece. But, you know, you and I actually were involved in a, in a book that spoke briefly about that. Um, and uh, so if we put all that stuff to, to one side and say, you know, it is up to each person individually to, you know, to, to research the story, because I do think people ought to know about the way animals are treated on set, but it does look like this was not as it was originally represented. The film itself, um, it's kind of 
cute in a weird way. I mean, he's a strange mixture of uh, canine affection and reincarnation and therefore sort of, you know, sort of, uh, philosophical musing about life as seen from the point of view of a dog. The general message seems to be that, uh, you know, dogs are people too, that we should all live in the moment. Yeah, it's a, No, they're not. No, but it's, you know what I mean. Yeah. Dogs are people too. Never mind. We should all live in the moment. We should all stop and take time to breathe the air and look at what we have around us because we're all a bit, aren't we? You know, yes. we're all part of the great big, you know, Liked natural by melting the world pot. Of Coke. And I have to confess that uh, by the end of it, I, I did have a little something in my eye. Well, now, Matthew Lawrence on an email here. My name is Matthew. I live in Dublin. I saw an early screening of A Dog's Purpose last weekend. It wasn't very good. It's stupid, melodramatic. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what message it was trying to convey, and Josh Gad is a bad dog. See what I did there. Very good. So the film wasn't great. However, the experience of watching the film was quite remarkable. It was busy, a nearly full screen, all code respectful, uh, incidentally, and from where I was sitting at the top, I could see a remarkable, remarkable amount of the audience, nearly all of them, in fact, weeping from the start of the film to the end, and particularly at the emotional bits. I've never seen an entire screen of people weep before, and it wasn't quiet either. Maybe I just don't get it because I'm not a dog person, but it really left the film sticking in my mind all week since I feel perhaps I've missed out on something amazing. Uh, anyway, can you understand that? Yeah, because... Weeping I, all the way through? Well, not all the way through seems a little bit... But, you know, it's... Uh, it, 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 there are... So, I mean, I have to say, if you... If you look at this in a scale of dog movies, it's not Marley and Me, right, which is the far end of the, mm -hmm. oh, my word, that's terrible, but nor is it Hartshie, A Dog's Life, which I just really liked. Is um, it Turner and Hooch? I See, I'm not a huge fan of Turner and Hooch. I know that you are, and I've never quite understood that. I always thought Turner and Hooch was a slight Tom Hanks misstep. Um, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't Wash a film. Wash your mouth out. Really? I might have to go and see it again. But Hartshie, OK, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. I will watch Turner and Hooch if you will watch Hartshie a Dog's Life. A Dog's Tale. Hartshie a Dog's Tale, it's called. Hartshie a Dog's Tale. Can I watch Beethoven? No, because I love Beethoven. That's all fine. We all know Beethoven's great. Beethoven's fabulous. Well, but go, Hartshie a Dog's Tale. I'll just make a note of it and see if I can fit that in. Yeah. What are you going to do in the next half hour? Anything in, good? Uh, no, we'll probably do nothing good at all. Yes, no. I'm going to do loads of interesting stuff. I'm going to do... Uh, I'm going to grab a piece of paper. I'm going to do uh, Sleepless, um, thank you, and Harmonian and TV movies. Stop talking in my ear, Robin. At least, it says it there, it comes out here. At least someone knows what's going on. <laughs> uh, TV movie of the week. Here we go. Um, and Tombi Peters says... It's a good week, but if it's on the list, I will always pick 12 Angry Men. It's a masterpiece and a great example of a play turned into a cinematic film. You can practically smell the body odour and old coffee. I think Mark will pick Nightcrawler, which is OK, I guess. Insert winky face here. OK. Gavin Aldrich... Why, why insert winky face? I know. It's like... What is, sorry, what does that even mean? Uh, which is OK, I guess, with a wink. So what would that mean? I don't know. I don't really know, actually, what that means. OK. Despite all that is on offer, says Gavin, and there are some gems, I think The Reluctant Fundamentalist is by no means perfect, but it's sharp, smart and deserves another watch. Actually, Flappy will probably pick The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp as it's subversive and everyone is Powell and Pressburger mad at the moment. Excuse me, not at the moment. Some of us have been Powell and Pressburger mad. The good lady, Professor Her Indoors, yes. favourite film of all time is A Matter of Life and Death. And... Uh, you know, and we had to rush to see the Matthew Bourne uh, Red Shoes because 
seriously, long-time Powell and Pressburger devotees. None of this at-the-moment stuff. Chris Moody, if in doubt, Powell and Pressburger. Colonel Blimp is outstanding, made in the depths of World War II when the original choice for the lead, Laurence Olivier, was unavailable as he was on active service in the fleet air arm which is a pretty good excuse as it goes. <laughs> Anton Walbrook and Roger Livesey are both fantastic. I'll be watching Nightcrawler because I've heard it's terrific and I love me a bit of Jake Gyllenhaal doing Unhinged. Neil, <laughs> Neil Hughes, 12 Angry Men. doing Unhinged. I was thinking of Jake, actually, um, because we've got Catherine Wollaston coming on next week's programme to oh, talk yes. about Alien, Covenant, yes. which I have seen. And I was thinking but about you that can't say anything about whilst it. I was watching the Jake Gyllenhaal. Because he was on talking about his movie, Life. Oh, when you were talking about Life, of course, which Life. Was, which has a similar kind of alien inflection. Well, Life is basically alien by any other name, isn't yeah, it? that's true. It's just that in terms of Life, it's a, it's, it's a little, it's a globule of microscopic stuff. But then, you know, Life isn't ever a thing, as Elton told us. Neil Hughes, 12 Angry Young Men. Uh, 12, angry 12 Angry Young Men. 12 Angry Young Men. Is this, it's the prequel. This is like Young Guns, yeah. It's is the it, prequel. Is it like Emilio Estevez... And, and Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, all them. A fantastic film showing how we perceive... Is Molly Ringwald in it? ...individuals based on first impressions, easily in my top ten. And Matt Nelson, being a massive MCU fan and a bit of a wuss, I will go for Captain America, the first Avenger. Directed by Joe Johnston, with all the period charm and daring do he brought to the Rocketeer, uh, set a high benchmark. If it wasn't, uh, If I wasn't a wuss, it would be Aliens. I saw an advert for the original on TV when I was... Uh, little, which scared me witless, which is, of course, entirely what it was intended to do. What is our TV movie of the week? Well, I am going to go for Nightcrawler. Um, I was, if memory serves, and to be honest, it It almost certainly doesn't anymore. I was off the week that Nightcrawler came out and I caught up with it some time later and I had heard everyone talking about, uh, you know, it's very dark, it's you know, very difficult film, all the rest of it, um, but about how great Jake Gyllenhaal... Gyllenhaal, Gyllenhaal, is it Gyllenhaal? Cause you've, it's we, Gyllenhaal. It is definitely, yeah. Because yeah. we interviewed Maggie. Maggie. We did Maggie and she was absolutely very, very, very clear so that it's yeah, Gyllenhaal. She was, and she yeah. was also a, the most brilliant thereminist. Here's the way to remember. Yes, go on. Joe Hansen. Gyllenhaal, it's the same thing. It's yes, but, the, but the, okay. But the reason it always com- confuses me is that Johansson is demonstrably wrong. I know that's how she calls it. I know that she says that her name is Scarlett Johansson, but as Nigel Floyd says, just because it's her name doesn't mean she knows how to pronounce. It. And who is it who told us how to pronounce that? How to pronounce Johansson? Tom Wilkinson. Tom Wilkinson, the aforementioned. That's right, it was Tom Wilkinson. So anyway, Tom is involved in almost every conversation that we have. Yes, there, it is becoming like six degrees of Tom Wilkinson, isn't it? So anyway, I'm going for Nightcrawler because uh, then when I finally did see it, and I did think Jake Gyllenhaal was really, really brilliant in it. And he is an, he is an extraordinarily good and versatile actor. And when you interviewed him for Life, when you interviewed him for Life, when you interviewed him for his film Life, the thing that was evident was that he throws himself into a role regardless of whether or not the, the, the film can take the weight of his... Immensity. Know, of, his, of his input. So it's like no matter whether what he's doing is really, really serious heavyweight stuff or whether what he's doing is actually sort of fairly, you know, fairly throwaway, he brings the same sense of, of heavyweightness to it. So uh, absolutely, uh, that is on, at, uh, on Saturday on BBC Two at nine o'clock at night. Nightcrawler uh, by Dane Gilroy. Eleanor Roth, on an email, I'm yes. getting funny looks from various Texans as I am laughing out loud to today's Wittertainment broadcast, walking the dogs on the Katy Trail in Dallas, especially amused by Mark's impression of Orlando Dick Van Dyke Bloom. 
Wow. So that, I mean, there isn't going to be Wi-Fi on the Katie Trail, so she's just using up her data then, listening to us as she's walking in Dallas. Because, but... she, she, could, because she can't have downloaded us yet because we haven't finished. Yeah, we're still going. So how does it, uh, sorry, I, this is a serious question. How does that work? You just listen on, on what? How, you, this, you just listen, right? Yeah, you just listen. Okay, fine. Um, sh shall you give us a couple of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 uh, emails which you had promised, or do you want me to move on to the film uh, and yes, do them in between? You, well, you, why, don't you, why don't you review something? Okay, so shall I I'll do... I'll do some Guardians of the Galaxy, and then we'll take it from there. Okay, so I should, shall I do uh, Sleepless in that case? Yes. Okay, so Sleepless, which is a new <laughs> film out this week. Uh... So Jamie Foxx is uh, an L.A. cop uh, called Vincent, and when we first meet him, he is involved with his partner in uh, essentially doing a bus which involves robbing a cocaine shipment, um, you know, a large uh, stash of drugs. So he is, a, a, he is a cop who apparently is on the make, who is in, you know, he's got his fingers in a whole bunch of things he shouldn't have his fingers on. Um, it's a vast haul of uh, this stuff, and inevitably, whenever a vast haul of that sort of stuff goes missing, the person from whom it has gone missing is not going to be happy. In this case, Dermot Mulroney's casino boss. We were in Las Vegas. Did I say that already? We were in Las Vegas. So, meanwhile, Michelle Monaghan is an internal affairs agent. And uh, we, when we first meet her, she's having one of those meetings that only ever happen in movies in which somebody is having to talk to a psychological counsellor because of something they've been through that's kind of traumatic. She's got a, a very small cut on her face because she's reckless and something bad's happened. And uh, it's one of the ones in which the counsellor says, I'm sorry, but if you don't talk to me about you know what's happened, then I'm going to have to take your gun away. And then the, the person will say something like, yeah, great, good talk. Now I feel so much better. And they're very sort of because, you know, she's an action person she's not somebody who's interested in da, 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 da. you know you know exactly the kind of meeting i mean which i don't believe ever actually happens in real life no. somebody does this sort of thing anyway so very early on um our hero vincent who is estranged from uh, his wife he has to go and pick up his son his wife's working in the hospital he has to go and pick up his son because his son is a ball player at school and he has to go and pick up his son and take him to the ball game and then wait and there's an argument about who's going to bring him home but inevitably whilst he is on the way there their car is carjacked and the son is taken taken by one of the people involved in the you you know, where are my drugs thing. So everybody then has to converge on this kind of casino-come-hotel in the middle of downtown Las Vegas where we have the crims, the cops, the bad guys, the are they bad or are they good, the internal affairs, the police, all sort of, you know, running around, all searching out for each other, all double-crossing each other, whilst all the time attempting to convince his wife on the phone that everything is fine and nothing untoward is going on. Here's a clip. Hey, Dee. Where's Thomas then? It's okay. No, his coach called and said he missed the game. Where is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well he took off at, uh, a little while ago, but I, I think I know where he is. I'm going to get him right now. He took off? He'd never miss a game. Look, T and I had a little fight, so uh, I think he's just punishing me right now. What kind of fight, then? I don't know. You know, you know he, he was just being him, you know? And I'm sure you were just being you. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, I told him no, he couldn't do something. He took off, so I'm, I think I know where he is. I'm going to go get him right now. Find him. Remember we had an email last week from somebody who had written in to say that they had seen a film and their enjoyment of the film was spoiled by the fact that the score had been telling them at every moment what it was that they had to think mm -hmm. about something. Do you remember that? Yeah. And I said that I had been speaking to Anne Dudley, who had been talking about how much more difficult it was to do a comedy score that doesn't go quack, quack, oops, that doesn't tell you that this is the funny bit. Um, just listening to that clip, and I hadn't actually, it hadn't occurred to me so much while I was watching the film. That is definitely one of the things when this conversation needs to be tense. Therefore, the score is going tense, 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 t
the register of the film is that while you've got all these disparate characters and they're all, for a large proportion of the film, they're all chasing around the same building, which has got, you know, upstairs, downstairs, in my lady's chamber. It's got a, you know, downstairs car park. It's got a lift shaft. It's got bedrooms. It's got offices. And they're all in different places. They're in the bathrooms. They're in the bedrooms. They're in the gallery cuisine, but they're all sort of following each other around. So the best way of thinking about it is, do you remember that Brian De Palma movie, Snake Eyes? Uh, oh. Okay, so it's a Brian De Palma movie called Snake Eyes, which is a sort of it, it all plays out in something approaching real time, all within a casino, and it's all sort of voyeuristically seen through cameras that are watching the central character. Or if you think of Die Hard, you know when he's in, he's in the Nakatomi Tower, and it's all to do with the architecture of the tower and where everybody is at any one place. Or you think of a film like Training Day, when it's to do with that there's a cop who's gone bad, and there's another cop who might be not bad, and they're not quite sure, and no one's you, well. Imagine Imagine all three of those films all stuck together, but then all the things which individually made them distinctive and interesting taken out of them. And basically what you're just left with is the shell of an idea of a central place with a lot of people running around, chasing each other, double crossing each other with some perfectly well executed action sequences. I mean, there's stuff that goes on, you know, downstairs uh, in the car park, which is, you know, put together with a certain degree of, uh, of, of, of panache and pizzazz. But all the time what you get is the sense that Jamie Foxx and Michelle Monaghan, both of whom are really, really good stars, both of whom are people who have done very good work in the past and have been, you know, fairly charismatic in the past, really sort of stomping very heavily to make you think that there is more going on than perhaps there actually is. And you get people like Scoot McNary. Scoot McNary, I think, is a really terrific actor. We've seen him, you know, before in loads and loads of things. He does, you know, he does small budget movies, does big budget movies. And he's the guy who's kind of even more scary than Dermot Mulroney's uh, mob boss. And they are all working hard, but they are all swimming upstream. They all feel all the time like what they're doing is just trying to push everything just over the edge so it all starts to click and it all starts to fall together and it all starts to and it never quite happens and you end up with something which looks like an a lot of potential a lot of noise a lot of dun 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 an amount of double crosses and twists and ah but you thought it was this but actually it's that but no but then it's the other thing and then it isn't and it's all a bit hmm yeah, okay, fine. Really? And there's there are a couple of big big twists, big reveals that literally when they happen you go, I know. I I have actually known this for about 45 minutes and I thought that you thought that I knew and now that it's been revealed to me that you didn't think I know, I'm sort of slightly annoyed because I feel slightly insulted that you didn't think that I knew that thing that you've only just told me which I figured out. <coughs> in Act 2, and when you do the cough button, Simon, it cuts both our microphones off. Yeah, well, that's, that's quite a good idea sometimes. OK. So, ho and indeed hum. Ellen has been back in touch from Dallas. She says, I'm, oh, great. I'm using a live radio app on my fruit-based device, and I'm using, yes, I'm using up all my data, but you're worth every gigabyte. <laughs> there you go. Well, thanks, Ellen. Thank you. We love you too. OK. Um, Simon Oxlade, uh, I got to see Sleepless a couple of nights ago. Uh, knowing nothing about it, I went with no hopes and was delighted to find them dashed to pieces. So the first... <laughs> sorry, sorry, hang on. I went with no hopes yes. and was delighted to find them dashed to pieces. I love the construction of that sentence. For the first half uh, hour or so, this was a decent thriller that built up to a delicious premise. 
The tension built. The delicious slowly. premise being they're all in the same building, they're all running around chasing each other, they're all that. Fine, snake eyes. The tension built slowly. Peril was loaded atop of peril, mystery upon mystery. Then all of a sudden it decided it wanted to become an action movie. Yes, a, run, turned, a runny, jumpy, bashy movie. And turned everything up to maximum volume. It's like the director suddenly decided he wanted every action cliche he could get in a film that seemed to be delighted in having only a single locale, which is a, a casino hotel. So yeah. kitchen fight, check. Yes, check. Crawl through air ducts, check. Check. <laughs> check. Machine guns, check. Smoky gun fight, check. Car chase, yeah, check. Mm-hmm. Bit in car park, check. Surprise, mm-hmm. <laughs> check. Tunnels and him. Simon may want to mumble some of these. Quite right, sir. <laughs> Fox is fine. Monaghan's better. Both are let down by a film that is illogical, unbelievable. Oh, it's sorry. Illogical doesn't begin to cover. And implausible, both on a character and plot level. It is also a waste of a promising idea, decent cast and an intriguing first half hour. I'll tell you another thing. I saw Sleepless and Unlocked side by side, in the, you know, because the way that, that screenings work, you get four on a Monday, four on a Tuesday. And I saw Sleepless and Unlocked side by side. And I, although, you know, they're set in totally different places... I did spend most of that evening misremembering who was in which. That twisty bit was in that, and because any of the characters from either of those two films could have wandered into the other film and you probably wouldn't have noticed. Anyway, Simon concludes, big raspberries to the film and hearty hello to Jason and your bad self. Very good. So thanks for that. Now, I have another film to do, but do you want to do the Guardians of the Galaxy well, emails? How much time do you need for your film? Uh, I'd like a couple of minutes, if that's all right. So well, why don't you do what you need and then I'll... Flim okay. and flam to the top, All right, so as we say. Harmonium, which is um, an award-winning film from uh, Koji Fukada, which won a prize at uh, the Cannes Film Festival. And it's a, it's a really strange movie. Um, the story is, at the beginning, we're introduced to a family, a father, mother, young daughter. The young daughter is learning to play the harmonium of the title. And um, they are visited by a stranger from the father's past. He turns up, very little is said, The father-husband welcomes him in, immediately gives him work. He has a metal shop just downstairs from where their house is. And more importantly, he gives him lodgings in their house, at which his wife is slightly concerned because he he hasn't had a conversation with her. Who is this guy? Where's he come from? They clearly know each other from a long time ago. All he says is that he's an old friend and now suddenly he's living in the house. And she is initially suspicious of him, but their relationships between her and her husband are slightly fractious. And as I said, the young girl is learning to play the harmonium, and the stranger, who initially seemed really awkward, really odd, really out of place, starts to sort of inveigle his way into the family. He helps the youngster learn to play the harmonium. He sort of has a certain amount of musical knowledge. He agrees to go with the mother to her local church where he, you know, because he's never described himself as religious, although she is a regular churchgoer. And then he starts to reveal stuff about his past to tell her who he is, where he comes from, which involves very dark secrets. And yet she is still more and more drawn to him. And he starts to have this strange relationship with the family, which then builds almost unexpectedly into something which takes the film in a very dark direction. And then for the second half of the movie, there is 
a, a kind of this unfolding deception about the way in which the family dynamic is working. Now, the thing that I liked about the film is this. Firstly, it starts off, it moves at a pace which initially appears to be very slow and very gentle and very quiet, but it is moving towards something which is, you know, a, a really very sort of some powerful denouements. But what it does is it tells its story not through what people say, but through the way people act. So the stranger, when he first comes in, when he eats a meal with them, he eats the food very, very fast. And and so you think, OK, fine, so I know something about him. He sleeps in a room, but he has to have the light on. All these things tell you things about his past. So when he actually tells you what his past is, where he's been for the last however many years it is, you kind of know already. And the reason you know is because you know through the way he's told the story physically. And it's the same with her, that she starts to talk about the way in which her life pans out. And you know all these things already because you've spent time watching her. You've spent time watching him, the husband, who is his reaction to the stranger's arrival is utterly told through the way he stands, the way he looks, the way he holds his head. And... Although the film moves then into areas of melodrama and, you know, real sort of surprise, it is a film which tells its story through these physical moments that are often silent, that are often unspoken, that are often, they seem inconsequential, and yet you learn so much through their actions. I, it, it, it's a film that creeps up on you. It's a film that gets under your skin very quietly and does its, you know, tells its story in a way which is so deceptive that you almost don't notice it happening, and then you do, and when you do, it produces several gasps. So we conclude with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, as yes. requested, because uh, it is the number one by some yeah. considerable way. Sheila Bushell in York, I took Chris Pratt's advice from your show last week as I hadn't seen Gotville 1, and I downloaded it. Uh, to watch just before I went to see Volume 2. I enjoyed Volume 1 tremendously and spent the following 48 hours waiting impatiently before I could visit my local to visit uh, to watch Number 2. I wasn't disappointed. The music was superb, the storyline intricate enough to keep me wondering where it was going and the actors played their parts with plenty of humour and interest. Learning more of the backstory was helpful and it shows families don't have to be related. Uh, Dr Katie says, just returned from seeing Guardians of the Galaxy with the family. It was an absurd candy-coloured confection with a ludicrous plot, funky music and crazy characters, but we loved it. It had a big heart that had us all grinning at the end and we're already looking forward to the Guardians' return. Keep up the good work. Uh, and finally, Dennis in Ireland. I went to see Guardians of the Galaxy on opening day. What James Gunn has managed to craft is something grander in scale but more intimate in stakes, uh, and I loved it despite its messy plotting. So this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Mark, what is... I haven't guessed, unless it's going to be yeah. Harmonium. What is our movie of Well, the because week? it made me laugh and because I famously have a tin ear for comedy, I'm going to go for Mindhorn. For all its faults, it made me laugh. Next week, our special guest is Catherine Waterston, who talks Alien Covenant. Thanks for listening. Which brings us to the concluding part of today's award-winning podcast. Is it the Listener's Choice award-winning, Simon? That's the one. It is, the one over here. Can I stroke it? Uh, well, it's it's very light, isn't it? It's beautifully transparent. <laughs> it is. And the etching that says that's what that it's is. It's etched by monks. The listeners choice twenty. Oh, it's coming off. Twenty seventeen. Better just put that down. Is it coming off? It's just a little bit. Anyway, don't <laughs> forget, don't forget you're bringing in the Sony next week. I am. The one for both of us but I'm keeping the one which is just me as best specialist contributor. 
Anton, age 17. 2004 or something. Tis the season to be melancholy. The time to turn the lock on your bedroom door in a standoff with revision. The time when the generic fruit-based device whispers softly in your ear, procrastinate. I speak of that most dreaded of acronyms, the GCSE. You may remember a piece of advice given by your good selves last year uh, where you raised the possibility of writing hello to Jason Isaacs (laughs) on on an exam paper. paper. Well, in my time of need... Oh, please don't tell me they they did it. Mind as blank as the expression on Mark's face when sport comes up. I saw the light of the almighty church. Yes, written neatly at the top of all my exam papers were the words of Witter. I can only extend my gratitude to yourselves and all examiners out there. What I can only assume must have been some very sympathetically marked exam papers. Could you please be so kind as to give a big wass up to Aisha from Tanzania and good luck to all year 11s. So I'm not sure... So I imagine, so Anton, he's 17, so he's done his GCSEs. He's he doing wrote, his A-levels, isn't he's he? done, so he'll be on his A's now. But when he's doing his GCSEs, wrote hello to Jason Isaacs on every exam paper. And he seems to credit that with the reason why he's... Now doing A-levels. Now so doing A's. So he did well. But we are not advising you because... Then, are we not? Oh, sorry, I thought we were. Well, we're not advising that. Well, I'm not advising it, are you? No, I don't really want to be responsible for anybody being marked down by a, you know... I mean, the thing is that one has to imagine... Okay, so here's the here's my example. I remember having a conversation with a publisher, um, and I had written something in a in a in book. A book. Um, do you have books? I don't do that. <laughs> I had written something in a book, and we were at that process of it being. I'm I'm not nothing. It was in that process of being legaled. You know what legaled is, yeah? yes? Yes. And when did you get yeah, fine? So, um, and I wrote something about. I said somebody, some something, 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 something. Okay, something outrageous, right? Really? And they said. This, you know, you can't say this because this is libelous. What was it? What was it that was libelous? Well, I can't say because, it, you know, I, I had, I, you know, I, I had, I had accused somebody basically of being, you know, Something. the angel of destruction. You know, I can't possibly imagine who or what that might be. And the, um, uh, and the lawyer said, well, you can't say that because they're clearly not, you know, the son of Satan. And, um, you know, can you prove that they are? And I said, well, I said, well, it's a joke. And the lawyer said, the thing about jokes is they never sound funny in court. That and, must be true. Which is a brilliant piece of advice. And I think the thing about jokes in exams is they never sound funny in exams. I mean, I know for because I, you know, my great joke, ha 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 ha, was because I was forced to do ad maths because I did my maths O level in the 50s. In the 50s, that's right. I did my maths all over in the 50s when it was basically, you know, identify half a shilling. Um, th- Mary wants to move five yards down the road to visit Tom. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that kind of thing. She's going to catch the number 22 bus in order to do so. But um, so I took my maths O-level as it was then. It is still, no, as it was then, a year earlier to get it out of the way. But then if you'd done that, you had to do ad maths the next year. Which this I is another great anecdote. I've told you this, and I wasn't able to do it, so I just spent a year not understanding what anyone was saying in the ad maths thing. And then in the exam, the first question was, expand this equation, because that is a thing that you do in mm-hmm. ad maths. And so what I did was I got all the pieces of paper that I had, I stapled them all together, and I wrote the equation out in very big letters, and then I handed it in, and I got a U. I got two U's, in fact. I got a U for that which was unclassified, and I got a U for French the first time round. And the second time round, I got an E for French. And the third time round, I got a C. Time to stop then.
I would say. No, I've got a French O-level. I'm fluent in French. I can say, shoot de niège. I've got one O-level. It did nothing for me. I'm working for the rat race. You know you're wasting your time. Working for the rat race, you're no friend of mine. Yeah, but I'm, but I'm the other guy, aren't I? You know, you got your qualifications, you got a PhD. That's true, you have got that. So, And your sacred college scarf. Your sacred college scarf, which I'd never had, but, you know. Right, well, uh, listen, so all I'm saying, Anton, age 17... Uh, if it worked for you, that's fine. But obviously, we're not ever. You know, if you the thing that you put on your exam paper must be the thing that's going to get you yeah. to pass. You know, which can we just say we wash our hands of any responsibility? Yes, but if you do it and it's successful, hey, it's all hey, to us. Yeah, and always remember, there's no such thing as a cheap laugh. Thank you very much. And now it brings us time all the way round to our favourite point in the podcast, which is DVD of the week. <laughs> Hello, it's me. Oh, I w- you're not doing the laughing. Wait, this is a production. Hello, it's me. I was wondering if, after all these years, you'd like to meet to go over everything. They say that <laughs> time's supposed to heal you, but I ain't done much healing. <laughs> Adele there, whose birthday it is today. Happy birthday, Adele. Which of this week's DVD of the week choices would you choose to turn Adele's frown Upside down. And what would Mark pick to induce that infectious and throaty guffaw that we know and love? Perhaps <laughs> we should sit her down in front of Abbott Costello Meet the Mummy. Anyway, this is what you're thinking. Tom Beasley says, A Monster Calls absolutely devastated me at the cinema. It's one of a number of recent films to approach grief in a nuanced and compelling way, helped by a selection of tremendous performances. Uh, but frankly, anything but the morally repugnant passengers will do. Christian Closer, or possibly just close, but might be closer. Dr. K will probably choose silence because you don't argue with Liam not driving the boat (laughs) in a Scorsese film. My choice would be Phenomena because little can beat Jennifer Connelly in an Argento film with a (laughs) razor-wielding... James Brown, James A. Brown, obviously... Some incredibly good films here. I'd go for Aliens to temper my impatience at having to see Covenant. I've seen it. I must tell you about it. Don't forget Catherine Waterston on next week. I think Mark will go for The Hills Have Eyes. In fact, can I have two? What is our DVD of the week? Well, it is a monster calls because, as Tom Beasley said a minute, it it is brilliantly devastating and it's uh, a wonderful example of how fantasy cinema can deal with real-life issues in, in a way that, you know, no in inverted commas, realist film could ever do. And, you know, I've been thinking about Guillermo del Toro and I've been thinking about uh, J.A. Bayona and I've been thinking about, you know, the way in which fantasy at its best is to do with dealing with, with real issues. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. So that's our DVD of the week, Mark. You've been absolutely a treasure. It's been lovely to be back in the studio with you because... Yeah, well, don't ever know. go away again and do one of those silly things with your orchestra. Hello, I'm just on the lawn. Thanks for coming for the Thanks for listening, thanks for downloading, and thanks for voting. Oh, yeah. you are just teasing the regulations, aren't you? Well, How many people do you think actually voted for us on that all board? 100,000. You know what this reminds me of? Hello. Not the Adele. How are you? Have you been all right? Through all those lonely, 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 lonely nights. Terrible. What I say... I'll do anything if you pick up the telephone.
Thank you for listening. <laughs> Mark is available for all kinds of Weddings, gigs. parties. Our mitzvahs, he'll just come round and... Playing request now at the bandstand, El Clash Combo. Yeah, Let's head it more like the new vaudeville band in Chester <laughs> Cathedral. That's what it sounded like. See our playlist for details. Anyway, thanks for downloading us. We'll see you again very shortly. Tippity top, mate.